have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. one more time. I know we're starting a little bit late, half an hour late, but we had some technical difficulties. You're here listening to Annie, the Radio TV, the hostess with the least mostest on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star, Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Half a dozen other places. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And Curtis will be joining us shortly. He's coming back from a doctor visit. But we have ourselves some great guests on. Uh, we'll have to hold the introductions and everything else for all the other guests until later on. Normally, we start off the show with a dedication to a fallen hero. But because of today's difficulties, we are going to tag that dedication on at the end of the show. And so just for to let you know, the dedication today will be going out to Chief of Police Justin McIntyre of the Brackenridge Borough Police Department in Pennsylvania. His end of watch was Monday, January 2nd of 2023. So moving on with our show, we're going to go and speak with a guest that we love having on all the time, Colonel Calvin Wimbish, who ran for Congress out of the great state of Florida. He is joining us today, and I have unmuted you, Calvin, so please introduce yourself. And you have some uh, other individuals with you. I know you have uh, uh, Louis, Louis and Alice Leach, and who else have you got with us? Yeah, that Louis Submarine. He's with the Florida Republican Assembly. He's the executive vice president of the Orange County chapter uh, he's a correction president of the Orange County chapter and executive vice president of the uh, the state of Florida, Florida Republican Assembly. 
And I am honored to have uh, been working with and through him. He got me going on my initial run to, to uh, got me trained up and powered up to uh, give a hell of a fight to try, try to win the U.S. congressional seat here in Orange County, uh, Florida, which uh, I was outnumbered two to one, 211,000 uh, Democrats uh, registered versus 100,000 Republicans, about 147,000 uh, nonpartisan NPAs. However, when you have George Soros and Sam Brinkman Free throw in $2.4 million combined, bring in uh, Jim Clyburn along with Val Demings and the rest of the uh, shenanigans crew, uh, they really, um, how can you say, they stole the election. Uh, they, they did a lot of ballot harvesting. Uh, I mean, man, 2,000 mules was nothing compared to what they did to us down here. But I am a resilient kind of guy, and I'm honored and blessed that people like uh, uh, Senator Rick Scott and uh, Congressman Byron Donalds and several others throughout the uh, hierarchy of political world, as well as those in the community, uh, supported me strongly and gave me uh, the, the support that I needed to say I can I can rise above circumstances, and though they have beaten me in this battle, I, I said I was uh, with a setback, but no, my minister just re, uh, reminded me, how many times did Joshua have to go on the wall? I said seven. He said, and how many times did Abraham Lincoln have to run before he became president? I said uh, 14. He said, well, you've got a few more laps to go, young man. It was a setup, <laughs> not a setback. It's a setup for something that's greater. So let the God order my steps. So I'm just honored to come back and report to the, to the nation and my friends who supported me how much I'm, I'm proud to be a conservative Republican, Frederick Douglass Republican, who I'm, I'm just a, a fighter, and I'll, I'm going to continue to fight as best I can to win our nation back. Well, God bless you for that. God bless you. I mean, uh, we just had some election reform here, and they took out a lot of the ballot harvesting. Thank God for that. Uh, but I don't know if you heard, but uh, the district I live in, District 1, which is Nancy May, the, they've challenged the redistricting. So we don't know uh, who our representative is going to be until the court fight is over. So, I mean, it, it, it's still going on, and they're going to try every trick in the book. And that's thanks I, to Joe Pierkin Cunningham, who still wants to get that congressional seat back. So I, I, I know how I you feel, baby. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and with uh, Maxwell Frost uh, not doing a, I mean, if, I've been, unfortunately, I have to watch the seat uh, fan to see how and what he's doing for the district. And he's doing absolutely nothing. And he's insulting himself. And, and the, he's not living up to what the people expect of a congressman. Everything is all focused on a small niche of things from a Generation Z perspective. And he forgot he's got the millennials and he's got the baby boomers who are still alive and strong, who he's got to win their hearts, and he is not posting up a thing. All he does is bash the Governor DeSantis, everything that we're doing for education and, and rights. And so I just say to the people, pay attention, because if we find something dirty in that young man's uh, background, I pray to God if that had happens, and with Sam Brinkman Freed already in court for fraud, perhaps the combination might cause the governor to have to say, I have to appoint somebody to replace that young man, and I pray that it would be me. 
<laughs> My prayers will go along with you. All right. So um, have, okay. you, have you brought Lewis and uh, Alice Leach with you? I think they're going to be I'm dialing sorry, Eugene. in. I feel, um, Eugene, Eugene and Alice, they should be dialing in. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. That, uh, My they bad. They have the call-in number. Uh, I can reach out to them while you go ahead and uh, let me see I, if I can get them to call if they should be already online. Well, I, with you. I think, I think, I think they may be already online. Alice, are you with us? Okay. Yes. Hey, okay. Yeah. I apologize okay. for giving your husband a different name. It's Eugene, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Eugene. Yeah, I see. I got you divorced and remarried over overnight. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Sometimes I think that. <laughs> oh, you wish it. Uh-oh, you're in trouble. <laughs> no, I just feel that way. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I know we're we're clowning around and joking, but you called in and you reached out to us about a rather serious subject. And unfortunately, um, we have generations of our youth that are being lost, whether through it's through social services, uh, through indoctrination, whether it's the CRT or this new transgender fed, or even the poor education. And these are things that are not being addressed. We may talk about Social Security, we may talk about Ukraine, but we don't talk about our lost youth. And you're living this daily with your step-grandchildren, Eugene's uh, grandchildren. Yes, but just mine too. We raised um, his daughter from the age of seven, so she's just like mine, too, even though I'm upset with her. Well, you know, um, I was reading over some of the requirements. Now, did you adopt your husband's daughter? Did you adopt your stepdaughter? No. We got custody because the mother um, deserted her and her brother, which wasn't my husband's, and um, left him with a neighbor who... They called us, and we flew them down here. We just bought a new a home, and we didn't have a penny for anything, you know, to do anything or even send them tickets. And the neighbor that she had left them with, uh, Vanessa's mother had left them with, um, bought them airline tickets, and we um, reimbursed her for that. But she was seven and just standing up against the garage, her and her brother waving goodbye to mom, mom's new boyfriend and uh, her baby sister. And she still stresses out from that. Wow. But now, you know, the the custody and the, and the rights that grandparents have are very few and very narrow. And yet there's, there's untold thousands of other grandparents in the same situation as you are. Uh, your child or stepchild is no longer capable, whether it's for they pass away or they have other issues, um, they no longer can care for these children or they're so incapable of caring for them, it falls upon other relatives such as yourself. But your rights are so limited that for just a whim, care can be denied, and that's what you're finding yourself in now. Well, care can be denied, but also um, help and assistance. Uh, if you're a foster parent, uh, you get more assistance and help than if you are a grandparent or relative care. A lot of differences they take into account for getting EBT or assistance that way into your income and what you have, what you have in your savings. 
uh, you're allowed to have only $2,000 in savings or, you know, in the house in your checking account. Otherwise, you're, you know, you don't get assistance for EBT. You actually get less money to help and care for the children if you're um, kin or your relative versus if you're just a foster parent. So a, a lot of differences that they have that really aren't fair. Uh, for us, our grandchildren are all ADHD, and they need um, assistance that way, medical assistance um, for uh, their, their condition, medication. The mother has rights that if mother can refuse the medication, even though the psychiatrist and um, the therapist says that the children need it, and then the court does have a right to overrule the mother if she says no, which my, our daughter did. Uh, they have a right to overrule that, but it has to go through the lawyer and to the judge. We don't even know if it's went through the judge, but affects their um, mental health tremendously. And, you know, they're not growing normally because they don't have the ability to um, focus like most kids can focus on on what's going on and as far as the um, the system is how it works is it limits you whenever you ask anything or you're trying to find out they're always saying it's policy uh, one of the other things as a, a foster parent or a parent um, a grandparent taking care of your kids they have like a level one one of their requirements is that you have to lock up all of your cleaning items, like your dishwashing soap, um, your laundry detergent. Everything has to be locked up uh, so you can actually qualify uh, for doing things. Now, a lot of things we do not qualify for because we haven't went through all, all the things that they're saying to qualify for. And so that entails the kids are living with us. I don't have anything locked up. It's okay. You don't qualify, so we're fine to leave the children with you, but we're not going to help or assist you. I believe that. And I think it's like child abuse because the kids are the yeah, ones it, who are suffering. It, and the, the a lot of parents... You by denying you the ability to care for the kids, but in the end, it's the kids that take the brunt of it. Now, I understood yes. at, in Florida, uh, at one point, social services actually relegated the uh, actual visitation and everything else to the local sheriffs, but that's now reverting back to the Florida state government. Are you going through a local sheriff's uh, agency or are you going to really dealing directly with the Florida state government now? I guess I'm del actually dealing with um, one of the organizations because DCF um, actually puts everything out and to other agencies. One Hope United is where our caseworker comes from that, that's working with them and then they have other ones, Embrace. Uh, there's uh, Kinship, which is the one that um, I'm working with that's been the most helpful with me getting the therapist, um, some mentorship for the uh, boys. 
and they've been really good with helping with other things going on. In fact, through Kinship, I got the boys put in the Boys and Girls Club, which uh, our caseworker just, you know, denied with, you know, summer camp or anything because of their ADHD, they need to be kept busy. And we got nothing or no help whatsoever from them. It's basically been the community, neighbors, you know, that have called and said, hell, this is over here. Can you, you want to check that out? Or everybody looking out. Governor DeSantis gave um, $450 per child for school, back to school. We didn't get a penny of that for any of the boys. In fact, I just recently got um, $200 per boy for clothing, emergency clothing allowance. Uh, when they went back to school, we had nothing other than what we went and get pretty much with credit cards and stuff to get the kids in school and even doing. And my 15-year-old wears a 16 shoe. So his shoe costs a Oh, jeez. Now, did they come with oars or an or a outboard motor, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> they should have. Yeah. Forget about the car. You can just take borrow his shoes and, and ride down the canal to, to the grocery store. Yeah. And he's still growing. Oh, but we've, we've now, absolutely pretty much no help. Well, now, do you have all three boys with you now? Because what Curtis said, what note he sent me was that one of the boys was in foster care. Is he now back with you? One is in a group home um, with issues and problems that we had. We tried to keep him, but again, with the mental illness and other issues, uh, we weren't able to do that because as far as getting medication, getting any help, any assistance in that area, it's not. And he was just too confrontational, you know, with my husband. He's been raised to be, he's the, was 13 at the time, but he's been raised to be the adult. Mother let him ruled the roost and ruled the house. So we had two head of house in the house. And trying to control that, uh, we we just couldn't. Without the medication, you know, to calm him down or anything in the process, we didn't have it because mother had control at that time. Now mother relinquished, but she still has control over the medication, everything other than the judge actually making a decision. But for them to make these decisions, the children are suffering. And I I, I think it's child abuse. I I really think on the other end, you're taking them away from the parent, protecting them, but are you really protecting them? Not totally. Now, now Calvin, I'm going to ask you this because I don't know how the laws go in Florida. Uh, Is there an avenue in which they can approach in which they become the children's foster parents? Instead of having them look at it as grandparents, can they convert it into a foster parent? Foster parent um, laws, I mean, it's a little bit different with being foster parent. They have different levels. As a foster parent, um, you get compensated with more than you do as a a, a grandparent. But how to be in, I've been told, no, but we have no rights to do that either because they're doing reunification with the mother. So we have actually no rights whatsoever in that end of it. It's almost as yeah. if the foster parents it's, get better rights than the grandparents. Yes, and they, they 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 do in a lot of situations. 
I'm in touch with the foster parent for the one that's in the, the group home uh, with her because she would like to adopt Marcus, and she's the only one that has ever been able to calm him, you know, down and keep him. They had a wonderful relationship. He had a lawyer at 12 that requested that he stay with her and not go back to stay with her as a foster parent, not go back to the mother. The folks overlooked all of that, sent them back to their mother. This has been going on for almost 15 years. And that's Washington wow. State. And Florida State will not get records or go to Washington State to look at the history of what these children have been through because it's not important. Getting their birth certificates and their social security cards, I was told they couldn't get them here until March. I contacted the caseworker in Seattle and got them sent out to me, so I have original birth certificates and social security cards. But as far as caseworker and everything saying, that's not possible, you can't get that. Yet and still, a lot of places, the psychiatrists and other places, needed the birth certificates. Wow. My name is not even on their insurance with Sunshine. Uh, my name isn't there. So I can't even call them and get assistance and talk to them about anything. They have my husband's name, but they won't deal with me. Uh, I'm the one who does everything, and uh, they won't change it. My second to the youngest, they have his name on his um, medical cards uh, spelt wrong. They sent me out four cards all spelt wrong, and they won't correct it. You know, you're you're fighting an absolute uphill battle, and it's look like everything they're doing is trying to destroy you and your family, and this is just not right. And it sounds like you have nowhere to turn. So, Calvin, you know, having run for Congress, is are there avenues out there that she can go to? Uh, obviously, the per- the person that beat you, he's not gonna he's not gonna touch this with a ten foot pole. But are there other other avenues in which? He can, anyone can help these people. Well, part of it is the statutes, and that's why I wanted Mr. Lou Moran, who's very much like uh, uh, C.S. Bennett, knowledge, more knowledgeable than I have, and I'm still learning. As a, I would have been a, a, a neophyte in the con- Congress. Uh, the statutes that are currently in place are the limiting factors that need to be reviewed, and, and the state legislatures, uh, both in the House and the Senate, will have to go in and see, first of all, what is in the statutes that prevents and continues to, to clog the uh, line of communication and access to medications, and uh, then what can be changed, and if they have to go through a special session, or will they be able to incorporate that in. So those are the things that um, when Alice and, and Jean brought it to my attention uh, about a month or so ago, we started talking about it, and I, they are such great supporters in the black community in Washington Shores here. Uh, they had me involved with the Juneteenth celebration last year. Um, I can tell you that, like Frederick Douglass and all of us who really love this nation and rise above our, the color of our skin, they have the content of character that really blessed me and, and touched my heart. So I want to say that uh, there's more need of legislators to change or amend the current laws to break down these barriers. So the recourse is for us to work with organizations like the Florida Republican Assembly and Mr. Lou Moran, and hopefully he's dialed in or he may be online, and if he could come online, that would be great. 
and explain well, what I, we, I, we can do through the legislative process. Well, I do see another Florida number on the line, and if that is okay. uh, the gentleman, just uh, uh, please press one so I know on the keypad, so I know that it is you there. So if you do that, yep, that has to be. Okay. There you and go. Calvin, will you introduce him for me? Yes, ma'am. And ladies and gentlemen in the national audience, I'm very honored and proud to present the Executive Vice President of the State of Florida's Florida Republican Assembly, and he's also the current president, just reelected actually this week, of the Orange County chapter, Mr. Louis Moran. Uh, like me, a veteran, I'll let him explain more about himself, but he's the one that, uh, how can I say, as a former Green Beret and Navy SEAL community that I was in, he kicked my butt into realizing that uh, somebody had to step up and take a swing at change now the direction our nation took. And, Lou, you were the man. Well, thank well, you for those kind you. words. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words, Colonel. Appreciate uh, CJ and uh, being on this uh, podcast here today. I'm uh, honored to be here and uh, an honored to be an American as well as a uh, uh, being able to reach out to folks and help make a difference. Now, um, we do have with the... about alternative steps to what uh, Eugene and Alice are facing that can be done through the legislative process. And I, I know when CF gets back from the doctor, if he is able to get back in time here on the broadcast, um, what can be done and what we can do through the legislative process and what the Florida Republican Assembly uh, and your organization can help with uh, Eugene and Alice's issue. Well, what we do here is that we're working with the communities, uh, like with Eugene and Allison, and they come, come with, to us with a problem. What we do is, or an issue, a problem, however you want to call it, and we ask the question, well, why are, why are the laws or statutes preventing folks from getting help? And so what we like to do here at Florida Republican Assembly, by the way, which, which is a Judeo-Christian organization. We're not affiliated with the RPOF or the RNC. We're our own entity. We, we reach out to help everybody to say, okay, what do we got to do to fix the problem? And what we do is we form a committee, a committee addressing this issue. We write out the background, like, for example, what is going on that's preventing these kids getting the medication or the help, the attention they need. Uh, and then what we do is we look at the statutes. We try to call up the statutes and find out what is the uh, roadblock that's preventing, uh, you know, something uh, positive happening to make a difference to these children, for example. And then uh, we look at the statute and, and try to look at the language and say, okay, what can we do to modify, change it, amend it, what have you? And we make recommendations or solutions, and then we take that information and we pass it. Now, if it's, a, it's an existing law, like, for example, in this session, we can only address existing existing laws make recommendations to modify the statute itself. If it, if it requires new law, we got to wait to the next cycle, unfortunately. But at the end of the day, uh, we take that information and we make recommendations uh, to find some uh, uh, relief to help uh, that situation for the family so the, so the kids get the, get the attention they need. So bottom line is so the uh, form of the committee, identifying the statute that, that – uh, oversees this issue if there is there, and, and we try to amend it if uh, possible to uh, uh, to help uh, open the gates to cure the problem. So where do we stand there on this issue then with Eugene and Alice and these kids? 
what can be done? Well, I just, just this is brought to my attention about a week ago. We got to sit down, ha- uh, have a sit down, and and, and write every, the background on this first. That's the first thing. And then we do is we'll get a few folks with uh, uh, have preferably legal background, uh, and a few for a few of our what I call um, um, they go and investigate the the statutes. And we put that together, and we have a sit down and look at it. And say, okay, what well, we got to do to fix the problem? You know, so it's not like something you just magic wand. You got to really do your research because you want to make sure you get it right the first time. Because if you don't get it right the first time, it might trigger something else that'll impact somebody else. So we look at the cause and effect uh, of the change to make sure it's not going to impact another situation or create another issue. So, but a sit down mm-hmm. with the background. And then we and then we try to find a, a remedy. Well, and as you're going and doing the sit down in the background, and you're looking at a possible uh, remedy that you think is going to help, is there a way then to get the media involved to get public attention to this issue, in a, so that you have the background and support of we the people? Yeah, I think, and that's yeah, that's easy to do. But again, before you bring the media, in, you got to make sure that you they understand. <laughs> that we understand the issue before we put, you know, before we can help anybody. We got to make sure we get our ducks in a row before we go. Uh, and like I said, there's, there's, a, you don't, you don't want to be. If you don't get it right the first time, it can cause like then a, an impact. It can get you in trouble legally. So we just want to make sure we do it right before we put our name on it. <laughs> Excuse me, to uh, make sure that uh, it doesn't have a negative impact of the change itself. But hopefully, it's all positive. That's the end game, though. Yeah, I, I wish that we you had might. been able to block out a lot more time because we're going to have to have everyone come back again. And, you know, this is an issue that shouldn't just be like a, a 15, 20-minute or even as I'm giving you a half an hour. This is something that should take a whole solid hour and put these laws out there that say we're having the problems with this law, that law, and that law. You know, and we'll reach out to the audience out there and say, you know, write uh, to your congressman or your your state senator and find out why are these laws on the books and why can't family members have more input in the in yeah. the raising of their family members be they ch- grandchildren stepchildren uh, nieces nephews or even when you're dealing with uh, elder care because this also right. seeps into that uh, so yeah. you know we have an aging population here. And, for example, I have my mom living with me. She's 90. She'll be 91 this July 4th. So I don't have these types of issues, thankfully, but I, I, I can't right. imagine trying to deal with that when you're dealing with the health issues of the individual and then having roadblocks placed in front of you to prevent you from dealing with them. And uh, God right. bless you, well, Eugene and Alice, for the fight. Yeah, and we appreciate that. Yeah. We're gonna well, I'm gonna have a sit down with them here in the near future, so I can help help under, get a full understanding. They're gonna, they're, they've been asked to write out the, the uh, like give me a background, thorough background on this, so I can start to get some people assigned to this committee. Uh, this is we have like over two dozen committees that we work on, everything from school board education reform to uh, human trafficking uh, to uh, pedophile. We, we have a lot of different committees that we have. That people are working on to help uh, help make a difference, and then bottom line, that's that's what it's all about. And especially our children, our children are our future, and that's got to uh, we got to look at these things to see what we can do to help make a difference. Because end of the day, uh, who pays for it in the long run? The children, because it can have a negative impact on their health, and maybe their well-being, maybe who knows what you know. But it just depends on the uh, situation. But we're all on board to help out, do what we can do to help 
uh, Eugene in the, to make sure that uh, this, this doesn't happen again or just try to find, find a solution that's going to cure the problem. That's what we're looking for. Absolutely. And I'd just like to make a... I'd like to make a point to, to ahead, that, this being Black History, this being Black History Month, and with Eugene and, and Alice really in the heart of the Black community, they know better than anybody the deep uh, problem that this is occurring, and they, I'm sure they have tons of people like themselves who are dealing with it at various levels. So I really invite yeah. everyone that is listening and to join in. Next time you can get us on the air to talk through with this with CS and you and uh, Lou and, and Eugene, and uh, know that, you know, we're a nation that's in dire need of uh, support to, to correct the course because our children are the ones that are suffering. And as a plug for the uh, FRA, if you go to uh, the, their website, uh, you can go to Lou, you can actually give that to them so they can reach out and find a little bit more about the FRA. And we can yeah, help them. Uh, uh, here, but around the nation. Colonel. Yes. Thank you, Colonel. Yeah, it's uh, FloridaRepublicanAssembly.com. That's a brand-new website. Uh, it's a, like I say, we're a Judeo-Christian organization, and uh, we're, we're about uh, doing right in our community and to help help out all walks of life, you know. And we're colorblind. We don't get into this color thing here. We're, we're colorblind. We're, um, I'm, an, I'm a Native American uh, uh, Apache Hispanic, but I, I tell people I'm an American first, and that's what we've got to be looking at each other as brothers and sisters of God and uh, starting to work together. Uh, I don't get into that color stuff. So that's, to me, it's crazy. Amen. Well, I, wa- well, I want to thank all I of you for joining me. I want to thank have me. a watchtower. Go ahead, Kelly. Do you have uh, a watchtower? Watchtower? Mm-hmm. Lou? Yes, sir. I'm uh, yeah. sorry. Watchtower is associated with FRA, and it's a bit ties us back to the Bible. And if we have the Lord behind us, who can defeat us? And that's, that's the point. When you go to the FRA website, you'll see all that. Yeah, we're all not right, afraid. Well, we wanna... show it right on the website that God's in charge of our organization. And as long as you got that in line, everything falls into place. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining me. And um, we're setting ourselves up with a whole new format. Hopefully in the next week or two, we'll have it set up. And it'll be a lot better, and I won't have all the technical glitches I have right now. But I want to thank each and every one of you for joining me. And I will make sure Curtis gets a hold of you so we can bring you all back on. And this time, it'll be not just on a phone. It'll be video done. And it'll look nice and professional so you can go to your your members out there and say, see, this is what we're talking about. Look at the faces. These are the lives that are touched by what is being done to them. And God bless you, nice. and Eugene and, and Alice, you're going to be in my prayers every night until you come back, okay? All right, okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. We love you guys. Talk thank to you all you. later. Thank you. All right, God bless. God bless. Thank you for having us on the air. Okay. All right. We're going to take a very, very short break while I bring my next guest in on the line. Normally, Curtis is the one that makes the phone calls out for this. So just bear with me as we take a short break here, and I leave you with Ronald Reagan. And let's bring him in. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, It was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here 
than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bello Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Pork Chop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. We must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. All right, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, iHeart. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, is at a doctor's visit, so he's not with me today, so that's why I'm messing up really bad. But anyway, he should be joining us shortly. But in the interim, we have joining us uh, author of a fantastic new book that is out. And let me bring the book in front of me so I don't mess this up too badly. Uh, Mark Moyer, his book is second of three. It's called Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Welcome aboard, Mark. And you're probably sorry you got me today. You're going, this woman's nuts. Do I really want to talk to her? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. great to be here with you. 
Yeah, I, I had a little bit of a hiatus, so this is my first day back. And you would think after doing this for 12 going on 13 years, I would not mess up, but I managed to do it every time. <laughs> but I was fascinated reading your book, and I mean literally from page one. And I'm going to hold the book up in front of the camera because people know that I actually read these books so they can see all the little sticky notes and actually I even have a napkin putting it in the pages where I had marked it. But having grown up and lived and watched The Fall of Saigon on TV with my parents in 1975, uh, a lot of this struck a strong chord because growing up uh, in the 60s and 70s, you would hear your parents and the teachers and you'd read the newspapers and all they were saying about the Vietnam War. And you put a whole different perspective on it and bring out truth that the media, oh, gee, and why would the media ever truly tell us the, the, you know, what's really going on, what the media was spinning. Mm-hmm. And then you were watching the protests, and it seemed like the entire nation was against this war, the way the media. And, oh, my goodness, the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite, would get the facts wrong. Gee, wonder that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's sometimes easy to forget that the media's problems go back uh, long before our current time period. Yes. <laughs> Shall we say New York Times in their initial launch? <laughs> yes, it goes way back. <laughs> um, but, you know, we grew up and Walter Cronkite was like God on TV. And matter of fact, after he retired, there was a lot of parodies, I remember. Uh, and Walter Cronkite participated in it because he was considered to be the voice of America, the most trusted man. And you can expect true news from him. But in reading your book, hmm, we found a whole different side of him. Supposedly, it wasn't until just before he retired, he actually gave his true opinion of the war, which he apparently was against. But it was men like him, the embedded uh, press with the troops, that sent a completely different picture back. We were losing. South Vietnam wasn't fighting. And North Vietnam was kicking butt. But you're coming up with stats, and you, it took you 15 years to write this book? Am I, am I getting this correct? Yes, well, I, I did some other, other things in between. I got pulled uh, to do some, some things with Iraq and Afghanistan, then I served in the Trump administration, and uh, so that uh, slowed things out a bit. But yes, I, this one took a long time. The, the first volume also took uh, about seven years, but I wanted to be extremely thorough because there's so much false information out there and so I needed to make sure that I could really make my case with an overwhelming amount of evidence and I've also been able to get a lot of sources from the North Vietnamese side which are particularly important and something that uh, that most people have neglected but uh, but Cronkite's a very interesting character so he uh, you know he goes over and makes this famous speech after the Tet Offensive and of course we now know from you know, even the opponents of the war admit Tet Offensive was a huge military failure for the communists. But he gives this speech about how things are getting going so tough, and um, you know, we should really kind of stop worrying about trying to win this war. We should just negotiate uh, an end to the war. But you know, the problem with that, and he never really explains, is um, you know, you have to have an enemy that wants to negotiate, and the North Vietnamese were not. Uh, 
you're very interested in negotiating anything other than our surrender, which, uh, you know, and he didn't tell us, you know, it's time to just surrender, but, you know, one might take that away from it. But it was um, something else you heard a lot from the left at that time was that, uh, you know, we just need to negotiate and these North Vietnamese will act in good faith and we can just put an end to all this. And, um, and we even did these bombing pauses which supposedly were going to make peace easier, but which, in fact, the North Vietnamese just exploited to their own ends. And uh, and Cronkite, as you may know, too, later goes on to be a big champion of global government, um, you know, arguing that, in fact, we don't really need the United States anymore. We can be all have one big global government, which is just, um, I think most people know how ludicrous that would be. <laughs> yeah, and we're still fighting that to this day. Uh, but one of the things that they kept on saying is that we can't escalate. You, as a matter of fact, we were being attacked from out of Laos and Cambodia, uh, but you can't go into there because it's going to bring China in. But China really didn't want to get into this war, did they? Yeah, that's one of yeah that's one of the big things. Well, there's, yeah, there's a couple problems with this whole argument that. Uh, because that's what the military is saying in this period that the enemy is using Cambodia and Laos as sanctuaries and they're moving their supplies there through the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So we got to go in there. And uh, but you have people saying, well, we can't violate the neutrality of Cambodia and Laos, which, you know, it's already being violated by the enemy. So why you would, you know, forswear for that reason is silly. And then you also have um, Robert uh, McNamara, Secretary of Defense, telling Johnson that, you know, well, well, we don't want to provoke the Chinese and the Soviets. And, but, you know, the Chinese and Soviets are already directly aiding the con- country that is uh, we're fighting against. So why do we need to be so careful about provoking them when they're already uh, causing us so much trouble? Well, you know, uh, I, I do my homework thoroughly, and I'm sure, you know, your agent mentioned, hey, she does read the books. Uh, but <laughs> what I also did was last night I went in to look at the reviews. And I know all authors Mm -hmm. read the reviews. And I found, Mm -hmm. you know, a few that were fair, but there was a couple, even though they were fair, there was always a little bit of a backhand, as if, like, the Mm -hmm. fact that you are exposing what actually happened. But most people, when they look at the Vietnam War, they look at what the government stats they put out, they'll look at what the media says about it, and they'll look at the media films and occasionally military footage, but even the military footage at the time, uh, the numbers weren't exactly jiving. You actually went all the way back to U.S. and North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese sources, the actual people that were there, the actual records, and you came up with a completely different picture than what the media was showing at the time of the war. And I found it amazing as I'm reading these reviews, they kind of like gloss over that, um, Mm-hmm. One of them, uh, the American Spectator, was one of them. He gives you a backhanded compliment when he said, scholars and writers who challenge conventional accounts of history are often courageous and invaluable seekers of truth. They don't always find the whole truth, but their work often gets us closer to what really happened. One such scholar is Mark Moyer. Well, uh, it's one way of giving you a nice compliment, but it was a little bit backhanded. <laughs> yeah, thing, yeah. Wasn't it? it was a, it was a little, yeah, that was a little odd. We, uh, yeah, I mean, this book is still so new that we've only got a, a handful of reviews. I Triumph Forsaken, the previous volume, got, 
you know, all sorts of reviews, uh, most of them positive. Um, and we've already got a good number of Amazon reviews for this one, but expecting uh, in the next month or two we'll see more. But yeah, I've gotten for both books an overwhelmingly positive response from veterans, and they are really the people whose you know opinion I, I value the most because they you know experience this, and so many of them tell me you know I'm so I'm glad somebody finally got you know something out there that's actually you know, true to what I remember and, you know, the media and academics have so badly distorted it. And of course, um, one thing, one thing I point out is that much, probably most of the people who've written about Vietnam, including both journalists and uh, professors uh, are people who were opposed to the war at the time. And so that is kind of colored. I think everything they've written and in this book, I talk about how the war is actually not, unpopular in colleges until the middle of 1967 and it's at that point uh, that you have changes in the draft rules that make it harder for students to uh, get exemptions for graduate school and you know even people on the left will acknowledge oh yeah this is kind of the turning point you also have the baby boomers coming of age but so what you have is this group of people who and this is really you know, unprecedented U.S. history, their generation that's basically saying, well, we really don't want to go serve in the military, even though our country's at war. And so what they do is they come up with uh, rationale as to why this is actually not such a, you know, awful thing as it might seem. So they have to prove that this was a bad war because if it was actually, a, you know, worthwhile war, it'd be very hard to justify dodging the draft. And so these people criticize it then and then they you know after the fact some of them go on to write about it and try to justify themselves and so these people you know they're certainly not uh, willing to uh, take what I say seriously I mean there's a, there's some who are open-minded but many are just very set in their views and uh, simply when new ideas come along they'll just attack them well it's, it's funny you know, my brother missed the draft by one digit believe it or not uh, we lived up in New York at the time. You can tell from my dialect, <laughs> native New York. I may not have been born in the South, but I got here as soon as I could. But he actually missed it by one number because I used to print the draft numbers on the front page of the newspaper, as if anyone reads mm. the newspaper anymore. Uh, but I mm-hmm. remember all the creative ways in which people were drafting, dodging the draft. And I remember a parody song off of uh, California, Here I Come, Canada, Here I Come. <laughs> <laughs> it was a parody song that used to be going around. I, you know, they would enlist, join, go to college, whatever, say, hey, I get a deferral because I'm in college. Next thing you know, you have someone like my older brother that spent the next 30 years in college. <laughs> but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I may be laughing, but it, it's the truth. You know, you had people that were just perpetual college students. There was a lot mm-hmm. of creative ways. But at one point, if I am I'm digging thra- back through the cobwebs in this gray hair of mine, and um, I do remember at one point they said, well, if you don't go to the draft, you can join the Peace Corps or something and avoid the draft. Do you remember that? Um, yeah, I believe that was one of the ways that, you know, there you could people go to the National Guard, um, which is, um, you know, of course, those are more lawful. And there were those who went to Canada. But, you know, a lot of them end up, um, you know, faking coming up with uh, fake injuries or going on starvation diets or doing um, things of that nature to uh, to get out of it. 
And it's funny because my late husband had enlisted at the same time with his best friend, and they were supposed to go in together. Uh, his best friend was unfortunately killed in Da Nang, uh, and they rejected him because he was too skinny. And so he mm. actually went and was eating bananas and sugar and all this stuff to gain weight. And eventually, by that point, the war was over, but they accepted him into the Navy at a job he really didn't want, so he never went in. But there were some Americans that really felt there was a need to serve their country. So it comes up to my question was, was this a wrong war? Now, Kennedy started it with the advisors. Johnson picked it up, and Nixon ended it. Uh, But was this the wrong war? And if it wasn't, why wasn't it the wrong war? Yeah, that's a great question, a fundamental question that uh, you know I wrestle with in both of these, this book and the previous one. And part of the problem you have for the United States, first of all, is that Lyndon Johnson never really makes an effort to sell the war to the people. And he even admits towards the end of his presidency that that this was on purpose because he was trying to protect his domestic agenda, the Great Society, um, which is supposed to end poverty and civil rights, and that he also wanted to maintain good relations with the Soviets. Um, he kind of acknowledges, well, maybe that wasn't such a great idea. Um, so you have a problem for one thing that you don't, the commander-in-chief, who should be the number one cheerleader, is not explaining it. Uh, but when you look at the fundamentals, I do think there is a strong, compelling reason for the United States to fight a war in Vietnam, and it's uh, basically because there's a threat of communism spreading across Asia and that if the United States were to abandon South Vietnam, you would see most, if not all, of Asia fall to communism. And now, people, the main criticism that's made as well, you know, when Vietnam, South Vietnam finally is defeated in 1975, most of these other countries don't go to communism. Uh, but my counter to that is that Vietnam in uh, 65 is vastly different than 1975. Uh, you have one of the I mean, number of reasons, i one of the most important, which is at the end of 1965, and I talk about this in the book in a lot of detail, um, there's this confrontation between the communists and anti-communists in Indonesia, and the Indonesian military is a bit on the fence, and they eventually decide to side with the anti-communists, and there's a lot of evidence that they do this because of what the United States did in South Vietnam and making a stand. And so um, while we, you know, it, what, what happened in Vietnam in 1975 I think was unconscionable, we left our allies to... Uh, twisting in the wind and allow many of them to be killed or imprisoned and starved to death. But in the bigger picture, we did end up saving most of Southeast Asia from communism. And that is still a matter of great importance to us because today our biggest strategic rival is China. And so if we didn't have all these allies on the periphery of China, it would be much harder for us to try to um, prevent China from, you know, becoming an even greater threat to us than it already is. Yeah, I remember, you know, the domino theory is what they called, because they figured right. if South Vietnam fell, it would be the domino theory and all of Asia would fall. Uh, but when it was the fall of Saigon, 
uh, shortly after that, Cambodia saw the rise of the Khmer Rouge and the atrocities that happened with that. It was inconscionable. So the question was, is we never went into Cambodia or Laos. We could have saved those people that were then tortured, enslaved, and murdered because they sided with the South Vietnamese. And I remember seeing the, the pictures of the people and these traps they put around their necks. And if they failed to follow the orders, they were decapitated instantly. I mean, the, the hunger, the starvation that was left behind with the fall of Saigon was unconscionable. Yes, and that's... Uh you know, and that's a point worth emphasizing too, because as I said, people say, well, you know, most of the dominoes didn't fall in 1975, so no big deal. But say, well, yeah, what about the uh, Cambodia? That does fall, and the Khmer Rouge kill, you know, something like two million people. Um, and you know, the broader issue too, I think, is worth emphasizing that this was not just some hostile power we're facing. This is a a hostile ideology and that, you know, by the best estimates, communism killed about a hundred million people in the 20th century. I mean, a hundred million people is almost impossible to fathom the, the magnitude of that. But, um, it, you know, I think you know, young people today have a hard time really understanding how this ideology went so awry. And you even hear young people today saying, well, you know, socialism might not be so bad, um, even maybe uh-huh. communism isn't that bad. And, uh, you know, if you look at history again, I mean, the extent to which they were willing to just conduct mass murder is uh, really appalling. And it, Vietnam was an important step towards, you know, eradicating this ideology, which, you know, there's still so-called communists in China and, uh, you know, uh, Vietnam, but they're not really, um, they don't really believe in Marxism and Leninism anymore, you know, more than most other people do. Well, you know, the um, the North Vietnamese leaders, most of them were trained in Marxism in Russia. And they build themselves, like Ho Chi Minh, as a nationalist. But in reality, they were pure communists. And the media and our national leaders and advisors to Johnson just never recognized that difference. They never picked up, as you said, the hostility they had towards those of us in the West and our willingness to preserve freedom and individual rights. Yes, and I talk about that a lot in the first book, too, looking at the history of Ho Chi Minh and his associates. And uh, his myth arose in the West and propagated especially by the anti-war movement that Ho Chi Minh was really a nationalist more than he was a communist. And he he could have been the Tito of Asia if only we hadn't been so stupid. And, you know, he recited the Declaration of Independence once, and so he must therefore like us. And that is all filled with um, uh, falsehoods and misperceptions. I mean, we have very clear evidence that Ho Chi Minh considered himself an internationalist, meaning, you know, he may have had, you know, been a nationalist in the sense he liked his country, but he put international communism first and when you see countries in in a place like Hungary or Yugoslavia that do try to be more nationalist and get crushed by the Soviets Ho Chi Minh actually says you know good job Soviets because this is an international movement we can't have these you know nationalist upstarts within the movement and 
if you look too at how he sets up the government in North Vietnam when he takes charge, looks just like most other uh, Marxist-Leninist um, countries. And, and he was very close to Mao Zedong. And you know, we also know when he was uh, studying in Moscow, he actually stood outside to the point of getting frostbite in order to see the um, tomb of Lenin. So this is a man who is indeed a, a very committed communist. And uh, you know, another interesting thing we've seen come out in recent times is that uh, you know the communists, in not just Vietnam but other countries too, went out of their way to try to um, dupe gullible Westerners into thinking they weren't really communists. And um, you know, a lot of that you know, they did enjoy a lot of success in that. I mean, you do have people, uh, some of the you know tougher anti-communists in America see through this, but you know, oftentimes they are you know, dismissed as, as being reactionaries or paranoid. Uh, but you know, the record's are very clear that Ho Chi Minh and his, and his compadres were you know, die-hard uh, socialists and communists. Well, when I was reading the book, I was reading the dynamics that went on between Johnson, his advisors, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And General Westmoreland pretty much had his thumb on what was going on. He had the great ideas, but every time he turned around, he was getting stabbed in the back, and sometimes by one of his own generals, where he would order something, and uh, was it General Walt would just ignore him and go his own merry way. And I remember that we were saying back then that this war was being fought by Congress, but no, it was being fought through the office of the presidency and Johnson was on one end of the spectrum with his advisors you know in his ear and the Joint Chiefs of Staff is saying we have a war to fight we go in to win and bring back as many of our American boys safe and sound as possible yes and that's one of the big um and I knew something about this when I started this book, but I've learned a lot more, too, about the role of McNamara and his so-called whiz kids, who were these, uh, you know, a lot of smart statistical types, PhDs, et cetera. And Being these rough. people, yeah, the, uh, you know, they had kind of a characteristic um, ex- academic arrogance to them, and they thought that they didn't really need to know the specifics of Vietnam or the history of Vietnam, that they could use their... Uh, scientific models to figure out what to do and so that helps explain why they undertake this policy they call gradual escalation where you start the bombing of North Vietnam very slowly and gradually increase the tempo and that this is going to somehow enhance our negotiating position but we know especially from now what the North Vietnamese have said that these theories that they tried to apply were actually counterproductive because what happens is the North Vietnamese see this initial bombing uh, sort of pinprick style, and they say, well, aha, this means the Americans are actually weak and soft, and so let's try to take greater advantage of it. And it also gives us time to build up our anti-aircraft defenses so we can shoot down more uh, American planes. Well, Westmoreland had a really good idea on what to do. They were originally doing search-and-destroy missions which was devastating to the North Vietnamese, doing a guerrilla tactics. And they found, as I read in your book, that uh, as the North Vietnamese were trying to capture the villages, they were hoping 
that the South Vietnamese would turn to them and say, oh, yeah, you're liberating us from the imperialist Americans. Uh, but the South Vietnamese villagers were kind of like, well, whichever side is winning, we're going to side with them. Oh, and by the way, the Americans, when they came in, they gave us food and medicine and everything. They helped us rebuild, or they escorted us to the urban centers so we have less in the, in the line of fire. They, North Vietnamese were not actually getting what they were expecting from the South Vietnamese villages, were they? That's right, and that's another myth that really got propped up by the anti-war movement and even some people in the Johnson administration that that the communists in the South are these uh, homegrown freedom fighters who just you know want to uh, assert their independence, and uh, for a for a good while, there were many in the West who bought this idea that the so-called Viet Cong in South Vietnam were independent of North Vietnam. Uh, we now know that, and North Vietnamese have admitted this, that they controlled these so-called Viet Cong all along, and the uh, you know, the leadership of them were communists who had been trained in the North and then sent to the South, and the uh, you know the the mass of the peasants in South Vietnam, they were really not uh, particularly political. They, as you mentioned, they're more concerned about um, you know, who's stronger because they, you know, they want to maintain their livelihoods and their families. And, um, you know, they were not particularly concerned about who exactly held power as long as their lives were protected. So there, uh, the fanciful notion that somehow there was this big revolutionary fervor in the, the villages where, again, most of these people are, are not even literate. So, you know, like peasants in most places without education, they, they are not really ideological at all. Well, there was another battle brewing here in the United States because Westmoreland wanted to increase the draft. He wanted to also use reservists in their thing. Uh, so there was a mindset with the joint excuse, hey, listen, we need to build up our forces here and get them trained so when we need them, we can ship them overseas. But there was a pushback. They didn't want to increase the draft. They didn't want to pull up the reservists. There was a head-to-head going on there. So there was a, a difference in the mindset of someone that was drafted and someone that volunteered. Did that actually affect the way we fought? Yes, and this is an issue that uh, the military repeatedly pushes Johnson on, and there was uh, several really good reasons why you would call up the reserves, and the military emphasizes that the reserves are where you have a lot of people with advanced skills, a lot of people who've served in the military before, and our plans as a country traditionally been based on the idea that the reserves will be called up in times of war to provide all these skills. And so from early on, the the Joint Chiefs are recommending that. But uh, Johnson says, no, I don't want to do that. And his main rationale was that this is going to rile the people up and, again, give the idea that the country is actually fighting a war, which is what he doesn't want because he wants to be the domestic president who ended poverty and promoted civil rights. And this idea comes up again repeatedly. Um, 
Johnson always shoots it down. And then among the adverse consequences of this is that you have inexperienced officers who end up going to Vietnam because the reservists aren't around. And so you have a lower level of combat leadership. And so Americans get killed because they don't have the same level. American leadership in Vietnam is still generally pretty good, but, but I do think it's fair to say that, you know, this was a needless, there was a needless loss of life here uh, that resulted um, from that. And uh, it does also require more, uh, that more people be drafted. And, you know, typically speaking, you know, drafted soldiers are you know, usually not as enthusiastic about what they're doing as uh, those who voluntarily joined. And so that also had a, um, uh, an adverse effect on the armed forces. Yeah, absolutely. Now, most of what we were doing up until, you know, 1966, going into 67, um, was on the ground. But we also used naval now, how did that change the scenery and the dynamics of the war? Yeah, one of the fascinating things about Vietnam that um, you know a lot of people don't know is that in the um, in the early part, the North Vietnamese um, they decide to use, try to infiltrate weapons from the north to the south in, by sea, and uh, this also contradicts another notion that uh, you know, the South Vietnamese weren't dependent on the North. But truth is, even by the early part of the war, uh, they need to get weapons and ammunition from someplace else. So the North is sending weapons from North to the South. Now, the Americans in 1965 happened to see one of these ships um, while it's docked in the South, and they tried to camouflage it. They usually moved by night, but this ship wasn't able to get everything ready by dawn and so the Americans see it and they go and sink it and then they start a a greatly increased um, program of naval interdiction and so they're able to shut down most of this uh, maritime traffic along the coast and this makes it all the more important that they mean that uh, North Vietnam maintains this Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos and Cambodia and we have an multiple sources from the enemy side indicating, in fact, that they were terrified that the U.S. would go cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail as the American military wanted, and, uh, and we're greatly relieved because President Johnson ends up not doing that. And that was, that was a huge, huge mistake uh, because so much more was able to come through the Ho Chi Minh Trail, cutting through Cambodia, uh, where it joined, and how many men could we have saved had we cut off those arms? But with the joining of our Navy, increasing of our naval presence in in the Vietnamese War, we were able to bring in more air power, as you write about, more helicopters, more gunships, were able to come in and aid the Americans on the ground. Yes, and there's a lot of um, naval aircraft do a lot of the bombing of North Vietnam and it does, you know, said this gradual escalation policy is proves to be very ineffective. But by 1967, you have members of Congress who are screaming foul because Johnson is not uh, bombing to the extent that would seem 
necessary. And a lot of the generals are themselves complaining. And so there's a big hearing in 1967 called the Stennis Hearings, led by Senator John Stennis. And they call the administration up to explain things. And so right as the hearings are starting, Johnson decides he's going to increase the bombing to try to deflect some of the criticism. And when he does that, it actually brings Hanoi to the brink of starvation. Uh, but that's not fully known at the time to anybody. And then Johnson will back off soon thereafter. And there's another big missed opportunity here in that had they kept the bombing up, and you know, Hanoi you know, was very resolute, but even you know, resolute people can't fight if they're starving. And uh, But Johnson let his took his foot off the title, and North Vietnam's then able to, to keep fighting. You know, your book is replenished with example after example and actual stories down to the minute of battles of what was occurring and the courage of the Americans and the supporting South Vietnamese in, in incursion after incursion after battle after battle, we would have a small amount of uh, killed or injured compared to the North Vietnamese. But the media never got those numbers out. And Maury Saver is a perfect example uh, over at Cam Nee, where he's saying that the, the Marines went in there and destroyed 150 homes, as if that's what their whole intent was. We were there just to destroy anything and everything that was in our path. And you would get stories back to the United States about the atrocities the Americans are, are doing to the Vietnamese people. But the truth was never getting out. The numbers, true numbers, were never being put out there and showing the American people, we are winning. Our guys are better than anything out there. We've got the upper hand. And no, what the media is telling you is really exaggerated. Yeah, and General Westmoreland, he he does, um, you know, prevent provide some statistics on enemy casualties, but he be, he's accused of um, inflating the so-called body count of enemy dead. And this, again, I think um, in this book, I think more than we've seen before, there's evidence, including that from the other side, that says, well, no, as a matter of fact, these results really were not exaggerated. In fact, North Vietnamese admit they're taking these horrific losses and that they're not able to... Um, in many cases, keep fighting in certain areas because they've been hit so, uh, hurt so badly. Uh, another interesting thing comes up too repeatedly, which didn't get told, was that um, the North Vietnamese are struggling for supplies, in, and in oftentimes they're not able to fight because of food shortages, uh, because you know, the Americans, the, the, they still have the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but the Americans do other things, such as you know, concentrating in areas at harvest time to prevent the enemy from getting food, which you know, puts more stress than on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And uh, so, you know, again, had the Ho Chi Minh Trail been cut, they really would have been uh, starved and um, the North Vietnamese and would not really have been able to fight. And we have numerous accounts where they say, basically, we're out of rice, we can't fight, because rice has you know, the protein and there was nothing else really available to them that had the protein that was necessary for you know, men to engage in combat. They could grow these sort of 
root vegetables, but those didn't have the protein that they needed. You know, your book is fast reading, it's easy to read, and it's very, very informational, and I love it. I mean, to be honest, I haven't finished the last couple of chapters, but I know how the war ended. (laughs) Uh, But what I found is, what I found interesting is is that uh, in the Vietnam War, as in, in the Korean War, you had a lot of individuals that had uh, combat experience in World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. My former father-in-law, being one of those Marines, he served in World War II, Korea, and North Vietnam. Um, they were able to take their knowledge and expertise into Vietnam, and one of them was rather infamous uh, Major General Harry W. O. Kennard, and he did something in World War II that rang around the world. You've got to explain Kennard because he is he is perfect. Yes, and he uh, and so yeah, he's commanding the First Air Cavalry Division in 1965, and he's one of the first to say, you know, um, we really need to go across the border because. If we just keep fighting here in Vietnam, they, you know, we can be keep, you know, killing hundreds and thousands of North Vietnamese, but if they can just sneak back into Cambodia or Laos, um, and for one thing, when we started to hurt them, they can go over there and, you know, cut their losses, um, but also, you know, they can just keep sending in more people from North Vietnam, and this thing's potentially could never end, and. Uh, you know, Johnson and McNamara never quite, I think, fully grasped that point, and um, again, they were also paralyzed by this fear of the Chinese and Soviets, which turned out to be unwarranted. But um, you know, it's uh, as I said, I think the, the U.S. military, for the most part, really understood this whole strategic scenario better than the civilian leadership did. Well, one thing I wanted to mention about Kennard. He was famous in World War II because he served under Brigadier General Tony McAuliffe, who very infamously told the Germans when they demanded he surrender, nuts. But that actually came out of Kennard, who advised him to say that, which why you, you got to love the guy. You just got to love the guy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that was at the, the Battle of Bastogne. And um, as I understand it, the Germans initially weren't sure what he meant, so they had to get a translation but uh, yes they were it seemed like they were about to surrender at um, Bastogne but the um, the airborne were not prepared to um, to give up and that's um, you know that's another interesting um, comparison to Band of Brothers covers that among other battles and if you look at World War two um, you have this uh, you know what we call the greatest generation they were you know try you know they were going out of their way to try to get over to the war and and those who you know got weren't qualified physically to go were you know many of them were distraught that they didn't go and and uh, it's a very different generation from the baby boom who comes along and you know suddenly you know doesn't have much interest in this patriotic service and is much more concerned with uh with themselves yeah, the book is very fascinating. You briefly touched in our, our conversation here about the importance of Indonesia, uh, but you write about it extensively in the book. 
about, and I'm probably going to pronounce the names wrong, but I have it on this little stick-up note, Sukarno versus Suharto, and the dynamic yeah, that right. went between the two of them, and how it was right down to almost the last minute, and Indonesia ended up siding with the Allies, and the dynamics that went on between these two guys, and I found it fascinating. Uh, which I'm sure people, when they buy your book and read it, which they can get probably also on Kindle, I believe, uh, they should, mm-hmm. and really understand the truth about the dynamics and the importance of Indonesia in Vietnam. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's a, Sukarno is the president of, of Indonesia, and he's a left-wing guy, and basically yeah, at this point in the fall of 65, is moving into open alliance with the Indonesian Communist Party in China, and... Suharto is a, a general in the armed forces, but when the Sukarno and the communists go to kill the generals, the top generals, they don't go after Suharto because they think he's not really one of the anti-communist crowd, and that in fact he's more of an opportunist who will just go whichever way the wind blows. Well, it turns out they were, you know, largely correct in that assessment in that he was not one of the diehard anti-communists and was an opportunist, but what he does do is he goes around when the communists, just after they kill all these generals, and and he talks to the other military leaders about what they want to do, and enough of them say that they want to stand up to the communists that Saharto decides that, okay, we have a strong enough anti-communist sentiment here to move forward. And so at that point, then he does lead troops against uh, the palace, it defeats the, the communist forces that are there, it takes Sukarno um, hostage, essentially. They let Sukarno stand for a bit, but if Sukarno will soon get kicked out, Indonesian Communist Party is destroyed, and uh, Suharto takes over. And this also has implications in what's going on in China, because up until late 65, Chinese think things are going great, because it looked like they were about to take Vietnam. Uh, until the U.S. comes in, and then they also look like they were about to get Indonesia. So at the end of 65 now, Mao looks at it and says, you know, we've just had these two horrific defeats, and so what does Mao do? He decides it's time to, to go look somewhere else for enemies, and that somewhere else is within his own country, and he launches what's called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, which, you know, in good communist fashion, kills several million people, and... Um, devastates their economy, but it removes China as a threat to uh, the world for for a good while. And so that's another big consequence of the American intervention in Vietnam. Well, you know, mentioning China, one of the things the media and everyone else denied was that China was physically involved inside Vietnam. They sent advisors over there. And what the Americans were really impressed with is that the Chinese were teaching the North Vietnamese how to be better marksmen. Because they noticed that most of the shots from the North Vietnamese to the American troops were aiming for the head or the torso of the leaders, which is something that up until Chinese involvement, they really weren't able to do. That does change some of the dynamics going between the two sides, didn't it? Yes, and the uh, and the spirit of cooperation goes back to the 50s when the, the Vietnamese communists were fighting the French. The Chinese come in on their side, and basically Chinese officers take control of 
Vietnamese Communist Armed Forces and in the Vietnamese Communists get trained in Chinese military academies. And this you know, proves very useful to the Vietnamese in addition to the Chinese age, which then lets them beat the French and then again, they, they remain close allies. And it's actually the great proletarian cultural revolution that helps break these bonds between China and Vietnam, which again, another reason why things will be very different in 1975 than, than they were in 1965. Well, I'm looking at the clock. We've got just a few minutes left with you, and this is so fascinating. And like I said, we're barely scratching the surface of the book, Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. We're speaking with the author, Mark Moyer. Uh, I would like to ask you, what dynamics played in the 1968 presidential election and what was the October surprise dealing with Johnson and the Vietnam War? Yeah, so there's this commonly held perception that, uh, and people like Walter Cronkite helped reinforce it, that after this Tet Offensive of 1968, beginning of the year, that American public opinion turned against the war and basically Americans wanted out and Lyndon Johnson was um, started to wind things down when he decides not to run for president. But that's not really what happens. And uh, one thing, you don't see a drop-off in American support for the war. Actually, it increases early on in the Tet Offensive, and a lot of Americans think, well, Johnson's maybe going to really take the gloves off now, which he doesn't do. But support still stays pretty strong, and the American people, by and large, um, again, at this time, more Americans had... Uh, sons or uh, relatives or what have you in the military, most of the American people still support what is being done in Vietnam. They certainly support the troops who are over there and want to make sure that they have backing from the home front. So if you look at public opinion polling, actually support for the war is about as strong at the end of 68 as is when the American troops first go in. And so this plays out in the presidential campaign, you have you know, Hubert Humphrey uh, ends up winning the nomination, and he does that by siding with the moderate and conservative wings of the Democratic Party, which are actually in favor of the war. The liberal wing by this point has turned against it, but he sides with the moderates and conservatives and saying he's not going to withdraw. And then on the Republican side, you have Richard Nixon, who is the sort of leading anti-communist of his generation. He had uh, stood up for Whitaker Chambers. He had jousted with Nikita Khrushchev during a, a trip to the Soviet Union. And so he ends up winning, and this is, I think, another indication of where the American people are. Because they, they see Nixon as um, somebody who can be counted on. And Nixon has makes some sort of vague promises about how he's going to achieve peace. doesn't really specify how that's going to happen. And I think because of his anti-communist credentials, people assume he's not going to do something irresponsible like just capitulate to the communists. And then we see the fall of Saigon in 1975. It is a fascinating book, and I I'm, can't wait for the next one to come out. How far are you in with that one? Um, I'm still I still got a ways to go. You know, these ones as I said take a long time, and um, I've also uh, recently joined uh, the faculty at Hillsdale College, which is uh, um, 
great place and uh getting up to speed there has taken me a bit of time but it's uh i'm working on it but it's one thing i like to tell people too is that um you know especially in something like this uh you you if you try to speed it up you're going to the quality will suffer in terms of both the the evidence and also um how well it's written because even even the best historians if they rush they don't do the greatest job so it will be um you know expecting it to be uh, similar quality to the first one. So it'll be a few years, I think, before before we can get it out. Well, I've got to tell you, people really do have to pick up this book to learn the truth. And I, I'm, I want the first one. <laughs> I need to get the first <laughs> one, too. Because the way you write, you put the facts there, but they're not dry. They're not boring. When you describe a battle, you are there in that battle. You are hearing what that was being said and you give it the timeline so beautifully and then you weave it into everything else that was going around at the time the dynamics that were going inside the white house the dynamics that were going through other international relations and i'd love to have you come back on and talk about what is going on here today with the fall of afghanistan Uh, thank you very much president biden uh, what's going on in Ukraine <laughs> with the sword rattling that we hear coming out of China. And you are a font of knowledge, and congratulations on your job with uh, Hillsdale. And I look forward to having you back, not just once, but many times. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, it is. And God bless. And thank you for the good work you do, sir. All right. Thank you. All right. Murray's, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm starting with my next guest before I leave the last one. Mark Moyer, check his book out up on Amazon and all other great booksellers. And uh, we've got our next guest in on the line. And I actually have my co-host who just joined us finally from The Doctor. What a show. First day back after my little hiatus. And anything that can go wrong has gone wrong, but we're working through it. We will get this together. You would think after doing this for going on almost 13 years, I could have a show go nice and smooth for once. Nah, not my luck. Not my luck. So anyway, folks, we will have our next guest in as soon as Curtis gets done talking with him. And uh, Barry Sabrin we've had on before. He's got a new book out from Immigrant to Public Intellectual, an American Story. So let's welcome aboard Murray Sabrin. Good afternoon, Murray. How are you today? I'm doing great, Annie. Great to be with you. Yes. You know, um, I had a lot of fun uh, reading through your book. And, yes, I actually read the whole entire thing. You know me. I do. I do. Uh, And being the the, uh, grandchild of immigrants, having my late husband was an immigrant, I understand and feel the immigrant story very well and it was interesting to read in your book how you changed in your mindset politically uh, going through the 60s and 70s into finally becoming not a conservative but a libertarian Uh, and it's a fascinating book that tells your story and how you managed to do that and now you're a tenured professor uh, you're a political um, veteran of several different races and you are now out there as the clarion voice of the liberal uh, not liberal libertarian annie get this right uh ideal (laughs) 
Well, uh, the libertarian ideal is right there in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. If people just took the time to read the Declaration of Independence, it feels like it's 1776 because we have a lot of grievances against Washington, just as the colonists had grievances against Great Britain. And uh, they, unfortunately, had to fight a very bloody uh, uh, war of secession called the American Revolution. I think we can very easily, peacefully change what's going on in Washington. And, I'm, and, and the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is to educate as many Americans as possible uh, to, uh, so they can embrace, again, the principles that the founders laid down for us so we can downsize the federal government and these endless wars and have the type of society that I think we all want, which is peace and prosperity. Yeah, well, from from your forward in the book, and I only highlighted, believe it or not, um, normally when I highlight, I have about 20 to 30 pages printed out from the, the uh, e-book. But for you, I just have just a page. <laughs> it's not to say the book isn't great. It's just that I thought that these three things I highlighted actually speak for the book better than anyone else. And in the, in the forward you have, or it was written for you, if you pardon my dipping into the book to capture a moment that provides great insight into Murray's grasp of the connection between libertarianism and Republican partnership, partisanship, that's if I can talk, at a public speaking event, the ever-transparent gubernatorial candidate was asked by a young person in attendance, Dr. Sabrin, you say you believe in free enterprise, limited government, and personal responsibility. What makes you different than a Republican? And your answer said it all. And what did you say, Murray? I mean it. And uh, the class <laughs> and, that I spoke to at, uh, at Rutgers University, it was, it was a class taught by two political consultants, one a Democrat and one a Republican, and the director of the Eagleton Institute, where the class was held on the Rutgers campus in New Brunswick, uh, they burst out in laughter because it, I told the truth, namely that uh, in my lifetime, Republicans have campaigning uh, either statewide or federal offices, and they say, we believe in limited government, we believe in uh, fiscal responsibility, and we believe in free enterprise, and yet they, when they get into office, they vote for things that are just the opposite of those principles, and so I said, uh, when I became a libertarian philosophically in the early 70s, realizing that the Great Society programs of uh, LBJ and the New Deal of FDR were not uh, consistent with the ideals of the American Revolution and the oath that I took when I became a U.S. citizen in 1959 to uphold the principles of the Constitution, particularly Article 1, Section 8, which authorizes the federal government to spend money on A, B, C, D, and E, and instead uh, we're spending money on things that are not authorized. So uh, the point I've been making, Annie, is that uh, we have a constitutional crisis in this country, and no one, I mean no one, is talking about it on talk radio. No one in Congress is even li- uh, raising a voice about it. No one on talk radio is saying, let's look at the Constitution as to what the federal government can spend money on, and let's then look at the federal budget, see what actually the federal government is spending money on, and there's a great disconnect. And so I see this as in my post-retirement college uh, career is to articulate uh, uh, the voices of millions of Americans who are fed up with Washington, and that's why independents, I think, are the largest political group in the country today. Well, you know, uh, to tell you the truth, um, your book was being passed around when the 
Tea Parties first formed back in 2009. And our first, I'm trying to remember, first our first convention here in South Carolina, I'm going to say 2011 going into the 2012 uh, presidential election. And your book was being passed around, dealing with taxation and the federal government. And we all thought it was fantastic. And ironically, this was a famous uh, nationwide news clip because this is one of the first major Tea Party gatherings that the nation had had seen at that time. And Rand Paul was, um, I'm sorry, Ron Paul was getting ready to come up and speak and his uh, forward guy comes up to introduce him. And he's telling everyone, this is what Ron Paul stands for, blah, 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 and you must. And several times he said, you have to, you have to, you have to vote for Ron Paul. Well, little old tiny me, all of five foot two, stands up, and I shattered across the room going, no one tells us how to vote, (laughs) which made major media news on it. And yet what this guy didn't understand, rather than dictating to us, explain to what the policies are so that we could understand rather than tell us that mm-hmm. you have to believe in this or you have to you must do this you when you ran for governor the first time you were able to articulate to people what you stood for and you did it in a way that the average american could understand and say yes i get it this is what we need and thank you well, I appreciate that, Annie. I, I think that's one of the things I like to do, and I think I do it well, which is take uh, fairly complicated ideas uh, that seem complicated and bring it down to the level that even Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can understand it. So uh, this I is, doubt that. As they say, I, not rocket. I, I don't think they have the mental capacity, honestly. I'll, I'll <laughs> tell you, I, I've been... I've been I, uh, Annie, I've been following presidents for uh, 60 years now, and these two, I think together, don't have a triple-digit IQ. And that's what's disconcerting as a citizen and someone who was uh, run for political office in New Jersey, that um, uh, they, they sound like they're someone wound them up and uh, go on the stage and, uh, and just spout uh, platitudes and generalities. And Kamala Harris can't give a speech without giggling uh, three-quarters of the way through it. And uh, I've never seen a political, uh, a public figure like her. And um, uh, I'm just amazed that Joe Biden picked her because she got, uh, she dropped out of the race, I think, even before the first primary was held in, in, in 2020. And yet he picked her because uh, she checked off uh, a couple boxes that the Democrats now think are important in a candidate, uh, race and ethnicity. And, of course, now it's, 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 uh, it's sexual orientation is another uh, a key component of uh, what uh, uh, a public official should be. So uh, there's such a lack of substance in the political world. That's why you don't find many people of stature and substance going into politics. They're in the business world creating things for the American people. And that's why I love to speak to business people. I think that they are the smartest people around. Actually, the engineers are the smartest people around. But uh, uh, the, the, the entrepreneurs in America are the ones that made this country great, uh, Annie. Uh, one of my favorite it's books debatable. I have on my, in my uh, bookshelf is called They Made America, The History of American Entrepreneurship. And these are the men and women that uh, took an idea, um, got some savings, and uh, performed miracles in creating new products and services 
for us. And so that's why our living standard is as high as it is in our history because uh, growing up in the 1950s and 60s, what we have today uh, was uh, only uh, uh, science fiction in terms of the Internet, the cell mm-hmm. phones, watch phones. I mean, uh, these are yeah. things you see in, on, on, on TV, in uh, movies, about what the future would be, be like. And uh, it's great to be living in this era because um, uh, if, if we had good public policies, we would have a much higher standard of living and we would uh, eliminate a lot of the poverty that is around the country today. Well, we've got another friend in here on the show. Uh, I know he can't stay very long. My buddy from uh, the Epic Times, Mark Tapscott. Good afternoon, Mark, and welcome me back. It's been a while, but a little hiatus I needed. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you're back, and thank you for having me back. I'm sorry hey, for being Mark. late. I could <laughs> not find your uh, could not find your phone number for some reason. Uh-oh, no, you're not late, you're fine. We also have with us Dr. Murray Sabrin of, uh, with us with his new book out, From Immigrant to Public Intellectual and American Story. And a lot of stuff that he has in the book we can put into today. And um, Mark, I'm sure you'll remember this, but when we started the Tea Party movement, there was a thing that Murray, that they were doing. And you're, uh, you're, you're the finance guy. I got a little bit of a stuttering problem. Sometimes I can't pronounce certain words. But we had quantitative easing, and we were all fighting that, and fiat currency. We were fighting it tooth and nail. We don't hear about quantitative easing anymore, but is it still going on, Murray? Well, uh, the Federal Reserve has been trying to and has successfully reduced its balance sheet, which means it's selling some of the assets that it's bought during the uh, uh, economic uh, lockdown and implosion of the economy in 2020. They created literally trillions of dollars overnight to prop up the economy because, uh, the, because of all the lockdowns, that there, was, there was very little economic activity going on. Unemployment spiked to 16%. Businesses were closing left and right, and so the Fed stepped in, bought up all the debt that the federal government uh, uh, created in order to uh, uh, pay people uh, uh, in lieu of their income. And so you had the perfect storm in 2020, and uh, uh, this was inevitable that we would have inflation because when you create trillions of dollars, they flow through the economy and bid up wages and prices and real estate and collectibles and artwork and what have you. And we've seen this for the last uh, two years. So uh, there's nothing surprising about that. And for Fed officials to say that inflation took them by surprise shows you the intellectual bankruptcy in the Federal Reserve and in uh, uh, Wall Street, that this this is the inevitable result of printing money. And so now the Fed is trying to take, uh, reduce this money supply by selling off assets, and that drains money from the banking system in order to dampen demand and uh, keep prices uh, uh, stable, and so far it's not doing a great job because prices are still going up 6% year over year. And so uh, the Fed, I think, is going to have to raise interest rates a lot higher to squeeze the inflation out of the economy because when Volcker did it the last time in the late 70s, early 80s, interest rates, um, if you recall, went to over 20%, and uh, inflation was at 12%, so you had a real squeeze in the economy, and um, housing uh, demand uh, collapsed, automobile demand collapsed, and we got inflation down to 3% in two years. And so, uh, and that set the stage for the boom of the 1980s uh, with the uh, tax cuts and the deregulation that was taking place in the late 70s and early 80s. Now, Biden's going up the opposite way. There's more regulation, there's more taxes, there's more spending. 
and uh, the Federal Reserve is really trying to keep things together because if, um, if, uh, if they want to really squeeze inflation out, they're going to have to uh, uh, raise interest rates, which will cause a major recession. And over a year ago, I wrote an article saying the recession will probably be, begin in earnest in the second half of 2023, and it looks like uh, my forecast is right on schedule. Well, it's just unfortunate that it is. Uh, but, Mark, you got the ear to the to the ground there in D.C., and I keep on hearing rumbles about Biden coming up with some sort of a scheme for digital currency along the line of Bitcoin and all the others out there. What are you hearing, and what does the Federal Reserve have in store for us? Well, I don't follow the Federal Reserve nearly as much as I do Congress, and I can tell you in Congress that um, – I believe Senator Crapo, uh, Mike Crapo from uh, Idaho, who is the ranking Republican on the Senate Finance Committee, uh, has introduced a bill uh, to bar the creation of a crypto-type currency by the government. Uh, and I, I think particularly in view of um, <laughs> what we have seen in recent weeks, in recent months from um, the um, uh, Brinkman scandal with cryptocurrency, that there is a tremendous amount of skepticism about it. So I, I would not expect the Biden folks to, um, to be able to make any progress at all in that front. Oh, I, I pray that it's true. The one good thing about higher interest rates, I'm watching my savings account start to grow again. <laughs> It's not good if you want to refinance or buy a house, but it's great for my savings account at the moment. But it is out of control, and we've got to find some way to bring it under control. Uh, But I don't see that happening anytime soon, do you, Murray? Well, uh, actually, uh, for so many years, we had zero interest rates, which means that uh, we were losing, every saver was losing 3 4% in purchasing power because inflation was running around 3% on average over the past several years. And uh, right now, we're still getting an interest rate that's less than the rate of inflation. If inflation is running 6% year over year and we're getting 4%, we're still losing 2% a year. And to add insult to injury, we have to pay taxes on that 4% interest that we earn on our savings accounts and on our money market accounts. So, again, the Federal Reserve has really messed things up, to use a a polite term. They really uh, have done a great (laughs) disservice to the American people. Uh, They've given them a full sense of prosperity. Uh, We've had a housing bubble. Prices have gone through the roof. Uh, Where I am here in southwest Florida, a lot of it has to do with uh, the money that the Fed has created and keeping uh, mortgage rates down to 3%. Uh, But there's a tremendous influx, as we all know, of people leaving the blue states and coming to Florida, which has been basically opened uh, since uh, mid-2020 when Governor DeSantis says we're not going to have lockdowns, we're not going to keep the schools closed. And uh, the economy has been doing much better than I think any state in the union. And so uh, when I decided to retire in 2020, uh, we moved to Florida a year later, and uh, it's probably one of the best decisions I've made in my life because not only is the weather magnificent, but um, uh, it's, it's great to be in a state where the governor has a level head and he's not into all this uh, uh, control over the economy, which means that businesses are flocking here. I mean, there are so many businesses that are leaving Chicago, which has become a real uh, war zone, given all the crime that's there, uh, leaving Connecticut, leaving Massachusetts, leaving uh, New York State and other uh, states that have high income taxes. We're seeing people from California come here. 
And so uh, this is what happens. People are voting with their feet. That's the ultimate democracy in our society. How people um, vote is more important with uh, their feet than it is with the ballot box to a, to a certain degree. Well, Andy, I'm going to change the subject a little bit. Oh, go ahead, Curtis. Oh, I was going to ask this, uh, Murray and Mark. Which one you would you think would be better for our economy, uh, a Trump or DeSantis? Ooh. Well, that's an interesting question. Mark, you want to start with that, please? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Murray. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking as as a uh, reporter, a journalist for low these many years, um, we do have something of a record from um, his four years in the White House, and he cut taxes, which was a great thing. Um, he went along with a tremendous amount of spending that uh, more than a few people think was excessive, um, which is not such a great thing. Uh, DeSantis, I covered him when he was in Congress, and he has always struck me as um, a guy with a uh, pretty strong dose of common sense to go along with a great deal of intelligence. Um, I have a suspicion that... Um, Four years of DeSantis would uh, probably be very prosperous for the American people. I, I basically agree with Mark Set. Yeah, I, I basically agree. The key thing is is spending. And as, as Mark pointed out, uh, spending just went through the roof in 2020 and 2021 um, because the uh, Trump's last budget was from September 30th, 2020, to October 1st, 2021, um, October 1st, 2020, to uh, September 30th, 2021. And uh, the spending, uh, because of COVID, and that's where I think Trump made his biggest error, is um, uh, listening to Fauci and Brooks in the White House about COVID. I think that really tainted his uh, approach to policy. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't get a second opinion. And... Um, it's important when there's a health issue that's a major health issue, you get a second opinion. And uh, and because Trump didn't do so, he listened to people who gave him really bad advice. And uh, that helped, I think, cost him the presidency. Uh, but we've got to address the spending issue. Uh, there's no way you can talk about cutting taxes without not talking about spending. And unfortunately, the people in Congress... Uh, the research shows the longer they stay in Congress on both sides of the aisle, the more they vote for spending. And that's been the history in my lifetime that uh, Republicans and Democrats both vote when they're in power for higher budgets in order to uh, ingratiate themselves with the voters, especially during a, a presidential election year. So uh, I'm not confident if, um, uh, if, if, we, if we continue on this path, but DeSantis, I, I think, Mark said clearly, I think he's a very smart individual. He, I think he understands the economy as well as any public official I've seen in the last few years. And uh, if he does run, gets the nomination, gets elected, uh, I hope he listens to some very smart people about how to cut spending. And what the first thing I would suggest he do is he form a commission and in six months they come back to him saying, here are the budget cuts that are necessary because one, they're not authorized by the Constitution, and secondly, they're counterproductive, and three, we need to free up those resources for the private sector and the nonprofit sector so they can have a head of uh, steam to do the thing that they do best, which provide goods and services to people and provide the social services at the local level without the bureaucracy of the federal government or state governments. 
Well, see, now my ideal thing would be that if Trump runs, he takes DeSantis as a running mate. DeSantis gives him whatever advice that would help Trump, you know, pare down the government because he started that with the regulations. Now move it out to everywhere else with a more libertarian lean uh, to what Trump does. Uh, and then when Trump leaves after four years, DeSantis is primed for the next two terms as president. So we get not four, possibly, or maybe possibly eight. We get 12 of Republicans holding the White House, the Senate, and the Congress. That's my ideal. Well, I think constitutionally, I don't think the Trump and DeSantis could be in the same ticket because they're from some same state, and I think the Constitution requires the president and vice president to be from two different states, so maybe Trump can uh, change his um, his uh, a domicile place from uh, in Florida New York? to, uh, uh, well, uh, New Jersey, he has a place in Bedminster or Virginia or something like that, but um, uh, again, that would probably hurt him because Florida has no state income tax, so I think he likes the fact that uh, living in Florida gives him a financial edge, but um, again, uh, Trump could get, win the nomination, if, especially if it's a large field, and it looks like it's going to be a large field, because all he needs in a large field is 25, 30% of the primary voters, and he'll win fairly easily. But remember, in uh, 2016, when he started uh, campaigning, he was pulling at 3%, and he, and he blew the opposition away as he was drawing bigger and bigger crowds during the uh, campaign season, and then started winning primaries, and he was off to the races. So again, uh, uh, anything can happen, as we know, in politics. I mean, who thought Joe Biden would get the nomination after coming in fifth in New Hampshire? And uh, South Carolina was his um, was his uh, savior in terms of uh, uh, getting 40-some-odd percent of the vote in the primary, and that really uh, destroyed the competition, and he was off to the races to get the nomination. But uh, Biden was dead in the water, and... Um, uh, he was resurrected, so to speak, in, in South Carolina. So 2024, 20, uh, uh, I think it's wide open at this point. And I have a theory about the Biden uh, presidency. I think he'll declare. And then uh, if things really uh, come unwound, uh, he'll wait to the last minute to get out. And then the insiders will appoint who they think will be the strongest candidate. And I wouldn't be surprised if Hillary Clinton has got her phone uh, um, on speed dial saying, I'm available. Yeah, that, Michelle Obama, Gavin Newsom. Oh, yeah, there's a couple out there. Yeah. And uh, we also have Gavin Newsom is running California. <laughs> I don't think the rest of the country wants oh my God. them around. I mean, could you imagine, <laughs> could imagine the Gavin Newsom presidency? I mean, that would be, uh, that would be uh, Biden, a younger Biden uh, who could speak uh, in terms of uh, trying to convince the American people that we need more and more government. I mean, uh, California is a basket case. People are leaving in droves. They have the highest income tax rate in the country, and um, uh, spending has gone through the roof, and they're running huge deficits now because they just overspent. Well, now, now I'm going to scare you and Mark, I swear, because Gavin Newsom, once, if he wins the White House, guess who will be a permanent guest in the White House? Nasty Pelosi. <laughs> you got to have Aunt Nancy there, right? <laughs> Isn't that scary? I, I am so terrified uh, I can barely speak. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I mean, she's an older version of uh, of Kamala Harris without the giggles. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard someone who's the Speaker of the House who has uh, a lower grasp of the issues. I mean, she's a total political animal, and I say that in due respect. I mean, she she crowded all the Repo- uh, Democrats. 
to stay in line with Biden's agenda, which has been a horrible agenda for the American people. I mean, uh, I've, uh, the fact that you have to vote on one bill that has $1.7 trillion in spending, a take-or-leave-it bill, I mean, if I were a member of Congress, I would vote no constantly on these bills because there are things in there that, uh, that should never be uh, items that should never be spent by the federal government. So uh, this, is, this is one of the problems with uh, the way the federal budget is uh, put together. It should be every item in the budget should be voted on line by line. And, and, and let them read the budget. I mean, that was what it was it a four thousand page uh, budget bill? Nobody read it. How could you possibly, as a board of the record of a company, vote on capital spending if you don't uh, read the, the proposals by the people who are putting together the, the uh, strategic plans for a company? So how can members of Congress vote for a nearly a six trillion dollar budget without reading it? It's shameful. Well, Mark, I, uh, it tickles my memory. It tickles my memory, though. At one point, there was a se- several Republicans that brought to the floor legislation. It never got passed, but it was supposed to tag onto each piece of legislation where in the Constitution one of the 13 enumerated powers that bill pertained to, which justified it being brought to the floor. If that enumerated power could not be pointed out, could not be placed on that bill, right. the bill is unconstitutional. Whatever happened to that, Mark? Well, the last thing, you know, politicians want is to have to be specific about uh, the authority that they base their uh, proposals on. Um, You know, I I have to say, if the founders made one mistake, um, and I even hesitate to call it a mistake, but they created a problematic situation when they included the general welfare clause. Mm -hmm. um, because, Because that's a handy loophole for politicians to say, and if you read the, the uh, legal justifications issued by the Congressional Budget Office on the, in the legislation that's introduced, it's frequently the legislative authority is the general welfare clause. So politicians will be politicians, and the best antidote to that is uh, a citizenry that is watching every move they make. And they need a new independent press to do that. Uh, Which brings us to what Mark just said. uh, I'm sorry, Mary. I was just going to say that. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you you point out in your book about the oxymoron of objective journalism. (laughs) That was a perfect point of it. (laughs) Well, the the other point that I would I would uh, make regarding what Mark said is that. um, the general welfare clause is such such an open-ended concept that anything yeah. that the government uh, wants to spend money on, uh, politicians and the Supreme Court have said it's a general welfare. But, however, our political culture has changed because remember when the prohibitionists wanted to uh, uh, ban alcohol? They knew there was no statutory authority uh, in, in, uh, uh, to do that, so they passed an amendment to the Constitution which gave the federal government authority to ban alcohol uh, production and sales. So at one time, even the big government advocates realized they couldn't run roughshod over the Constitution, and so they went the amendment route. The same thing with the income tax. In 1895, the uh, Supreme Court ruled the the federal income tax unconstitutional because it didn't follow the federal uh, Constitution guidelines on uh, taxation, so they amended the Constitution. We got the 16th Amendment. So at one time in our country, people had respect for the Constitution and realized that if we wanted something 
uh, done that was not authorized by the Constitution, you have to amend the Constitution. And so that's the constitutional crisis that we've been in for 100 years because FDR's uh, New Deal is not based on the Constitution and neither is uh, LBJ's Great Society. That's a huge amen on that one. And then throw in Department of Education. We can go on and on and on on all the different departments within the federal government that regulate and by their regulations become fiat laws, the American people and the American system. (laughs) Don't get me started. (laughs) I'm I'm finding myself a far more libertarian than I am as a conservative. But... As a matter of fact, I put a book review up on Goodreads and Amazon today for your book, just to let you know. Oh, th- but thank you, Annie. I appreciate that. But it's something that, Mark, has been in the news, these train derailments, and we're finding out there's far more instances of them occurring than we had in the past. And our uh, Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, seems to be asleep at the wheel what was that visit out to East Palestine in uh, in Pennsylvania? What, what was that about? Well, it may well be the beginning of the end of um, Mayor Pete's tenure at the uh, Department of Transportation because it was clear to anybody and everybody that he was not prepared. Um, and we haven't even said anything about the fact that he's three weeks late. Uh, but then, on the other hand, so was President Biden. So um, this whole situation in Ohio has proven to be um, a very, very, very politically damaging one uh, for Biden. Annie, I hate well, to, no. but I have got to go. I have a, uh, well, I I have a congressman wait. <laughs> I I'll let him wait. It's our tax dollar. <laughs> yeah. I, well, well Mark, I'm going to ask him about that. <laughs> Listen, it's great to be well, on Mark, again, and I will I will talk to you in, in a couple of weeks. Yes, see you back in two weeks, Mark. Thank you. God bless. All right. Take care, Mark. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too, Curtis. Now, All right. Murray, I was, I was going to follow up with the train derailments with what has been going on with our transportation and supply industry. You know, it started pre-COVID, and it's just been going downhill, and COVID just blew it wide open out of the water. But now we're seeing instances of far more train derailments than we ever experienced before. Is our transportation and supply system in the United States completely broken? Well, this this is another example of how some companies are are, are not doing a good job in getting uh, goods uh, safely to uh, final destination. And uh, it's just a sad commentary on on, on this. Uh, Norfolk Sun, I think, is the name of it railroad that was involved here and I just read something on the internet very briefly that there was some uh, malfunction on, on the braking system that caused the um, that didn't allow the train to decelerate properly but then again the federal government uh, is uh, taking responsibility for these disasters that happen in the transportation system and the uh, uh, irony is that uh, this is the most dangerous way to transport chemicals when we do have uh, pipelines, which are the most efficient and safe way to transport them. But uh, unfortunately, the environmentalists go crazy when companies want to build pipelines. And so uh, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you want to protect the environment and don't allow the most, uh, the best way to protect the environment in transporting uh, uh, chemicals. And so um, the, the whole system we have now is uh, based upon 
some fallacious notion that uh, the people at the top in Washington know how to uh, organize our economy. And uh, there are too many regulations in place which make uh, companies um, uh, have to uh, uh, genuflect before the uh, EPA and these other federal agencies when they are the ones that, that are uh, liable for any damages that uh, their uh, equipment causes in uh, in in the in uh, towns around the country. And so um, we, we we need a better way of handling not only. Um, transportation issues, but uh, disasters, and uh, the federal government has just done such a lousy job, and um, we live through Hurricane um, Ian uh, here in southwest Florida, and people have been magnificent, stepping up, donating food, clothing, money, shelter, and uh, it works beautifully when you have a society based upon voluntary efforts, because when uh, you have a tragedy like Ian and uh, these disasters, uh, people step up to the plate and provide uh, uh, the resources they need to help their neighbors get along. And this has been the history of America. It's based upon voluntary local initiatives. And that's the type of society I advocated in my Tax Free 2000 book nearly 30 years ago, that if we brought back that ethic where philanthropy would be the first way to deal with uh, tragedies and social services. Uh, we wouldn't need uh, these huge bureaucracies in Washington and state capitals, but everything would be done locally. There's a, there was a, uh, recently, there was a, still going on, uh, a meals drive uh, here in southwest Florida because uh, food security has become an issue for people who have been laid off and, uh, and, and have other problems. And uh, one uh, TV station wanted to raise uh, half a million dollars, and I think they did so in uh, three weeks. So people step up to the plate, they donate fifty, hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, and it's just great to see this. And um, I still contribute to uh, nonprofit health centers in New Jersey, even though I don't live there, because I know they're doing great work. And uh, I put my money where my mouth is, and I say that this should be part of our individual culture, individual ethic. Uh, I have to step up to the plate and and do it as well. Excuse me, I'm sorry about that. Uh, one of the things you're talking about with the transportation system is I don't understand why, but the federal government was hell-bent on breaking the trucking industry. And when you talk about yeah. natural disasters or special needs, one of the first group of people that will step forward are the truckers. All right, you want to get food, blankets, whatever, from point A to point B, we're coming. We're going we're gonna to donate our trucks. We'll drive them. We'll bring them over to the distribution points. We'll stay there. You need stuff brought back, we'll bring it. Truckers will always be the first up to the plate mm -hmm. when it comes to transportation needs in an emergency. How do you do that with a hurricane in Florida using a railroad line? You don't. But they've escalated the fuel costs. They've escalated all the other costs for truckers to actually exist, much less, heaven forbid, you still have an independent trucker out there working. I don't see how they can still stay in business. But they're breaking the back of the truckers, shoving us, into transportation modes that we don't want, electric cars, get them back on yeah. trains and buses. But that's not who we are as Americans. We're independent. We are self-sufficient as true Americans, and they're trying to break that, Mary, aren't they? Oh, they, they sure are. I mean, I've seen this over my lifetime from the 50s and 60s uh, to the present. The, the culture has shifted dramatically where people think the federal government owes them a living, owes them uh, benefits. When uh, the, uh, what are the goals every youngster should have 
growing up is to become financially independent. Now, we had the revolution to become politically independent from Great Britain. We need another declaration of financial independence, and that is going to take a lot of work because so many people are dependent upon the federal government for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, uh, housing, food stamps. It could go down a list, and we're talking about trillions of dollars a year that uh, flows from the taxpayer to the government to individual citizens. And uh, this is now this is not how you create, quote, a great society. You create a great society by people having the economic freedom to produce and work and consume and invest and save and do all the things that a free enterprise economy is based upon. Instead, you have people like Bernie Sanders and AOC saying we need more government spending and more regulations on business and um, less trade uh, around the world, which is which trade is is the is the uh, lifeblood of any economy. Think of uh, human beings who cannot trade. How many people can build a cell phone? How many people can build a computer? This is this is the division of labor that Adam Smith talked about uh, 250 years ago. This is what makes prosperity possible: is the division of labor. You 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 excel in something that you are very good at. And my father was a sheet metal worker, and he did that for several years. And then um, he uh, saved money and uh, bought a cab and became a New York City cab driver for 20 years. And he enjoyed his job. He got to speak to people from all walks of life. Uh, He had people from the celebrity world, the uh, political world, and he was a uh, a gregarious uh, person, so he would speak to people. And um, unfortunately, he never got their autographs. So I would have a collection of autographs of people uh, who were... uh, (laughs) fairly famous from the 1960s and 70s and 80s. And um, uh, this is what America, this is what I grew up believing in, that America is about uh, working to achieve your goals and not being dependent upon the government. And um, uh, it's sad that so many people think that way. And what's really, really ironic is that business people like Warren Buffett, who's a big Democrat who believes in big government, uh, even though he says he's a capitalist, even Joe Biden in the State of the Union said he's a capitalist. But what what is he proposing? Anti-capitalist uh, uh, policies, higher taxes, more regulation. And so uh, it's not what people say, it's what they do. And that's why I said what I did to those students at Rutgers in 1997. Um, I mean what I say because uh, I would would have voted that way, or if I had become governor, I would have governed that way. And um, to his credit, uh, uh, Trump said what he believed in, and he did some good things, and he uh, he failed at a few things. And so uh, we'll see how 2024 plays out. But um, uh, again, uh, given my cynicism about what goes on in Washington, I'm not very confident that uh, we will have a, a president. Um, uh, hopefully, if it's DeSantis, he will start doing what needs to be doing, which is uh, phasing out as quickly as possible uh, the big government that we have that is counterproductive to the American people's long-term interests. Well, you know, I, I, I've been feeling an undercurrent, and it's been bubbling below the surface for the last couple of years. And I think COVID is what really started to, to get yeah. into people's underneath their skin. And it just brought out all the other things that were wrong going on. And I had my Tea Party meeting on Monday, and I was surprised about how much anger was in the room. Yeah. And these are people that are pillars of our, our community, people that I've, I've lived with and worked with. I know them very well. But to see the anger and frustration, I can understand it definitely. 
But to see it boil over to the point where there was actually mm-hmm. shouting matches going on. And here, me, the New York City cop, comes out. It's like, all right, come on, calm down. Here we go. Private con- pop, uh, polite conversations. And we were talking to a state uh, representative. And one of the issues they were ticked off about was something that was on the county level. So I was like, all right, fine. We will deal with the county issue with county representatives. This is the state issue, the state representative. Let's talk state issues and see where they can help us. But let's keep the two separate because we don't want to blame them for something that happened here within the county they have no control over. But there is so much anger that people are, it's all boiling over. And they see any elected official as the bad guy. And we're not going to succeed in doing anything unless we recognize the good guys from the bad guys and know who to speak to and how to speak to them, I think. And that's something you talk about. Well, there's no question about it. You have to first state the problem. How did we get to this situation? And what are the common sense solutions? I recently spoke to a club in uh, Fort Myers called the Trump Club, and I laid out how we got to where we are starting in 1913 with the income tax, the Federal Reserve, and the 17th Amendment, with the direct election of senators rather than state legislatures appointing senators to Washington, D.C. And it just goes on and on of all the things that's been happening over the past 110 years. And more and more power has gone to Washington. And I pointed out that this is not what's going to give us a long-term prosperity What's going to get, what gives us long-term prosperity is savings and investment and uh, having uh, resources in the hands of people who know how to build things and how, how to create things instead of the government sucking the resources uh, from us by taxes, inflation, and regulation. And um, uh, in, uh, next month, I'm speaking to another Republican club uh, just, uh, in Lee County, which is where Fort Myers is located, and I'll lay out the same scenario. And you do it not... Um, uh, in an aggressive way, just as a matter of fact. Listen, folks, this is the history of the country. This is what these uh, programs, policies have done. It's made us more dependent upon the government, and that's not what America is all about. And how do we get out of it? Well, it's going to take time. We, we can't wave the magic wand, so to speak, or push the button and get rid of all these programs. We need to have a, a systematic, uh, what I call a phasing out, uh, of uh, these unconstitutional programs. And uh, the, the question that I uh, raise to people is that, um, or the assertion that I make is uh, libertarians are the abolitionists of the 21st century, uh, just as uh, they would be, they would have been abolitionists uh, during the slavery period, uh, the, the abolitionists today, because more and more decision-making has been taken out of their hands and placed in, in the hands of the government. Well, put, well, the government has taken that, uh, the, those powers away from people through, uh, through laws. And so I say we have to be abolitionists. We have to be standing up for the things that make a, an economy or a country really, really terrific. And, and, and that's why uh, what I'm doing, uh, and I really appreciate the, the invite to talk about this, is we need to restore the republic, uh, restore the constitutional yes. principles that, uh, that uh, the founders gave us and said, hey, Future generation. If you want to have a free society, if you want to have a republic, uh, this is these. This is the blueprint. This is the roadmap. And if you deviate from that, a lot of bad things would ha- happen. And that's exactly what's happened. These endless wars. Uh, and you have a senator that's totally in favor of them, Lindsey Graham, and um, oh, I write no, about no, his no, former no. sidekick. <laughs> uh, oh, and no, I write no, about Lindsay his Graham. former sidekick. Uh, 
uh, McCain. No, I write. Yeah, yeah, John McCain. I write that in my Substack column yeah. today. I said uh, we no longer we don't have the Joe Biden presidency. We have the Bernie McCain presidency. Uh, Joe Biden has given <laughs> us Bernie Sanders domestic policy and John McCain's foreign policy. Joe Biden is an empty yeah. vessel. He doesn't have a, uh, he doesn't have a, a a creative idea in his head. So he has basically taken John McCain's foreign policy and um, mixed it with uh, Bernie Sanders uh, democratic socialism. And uh, they're continuing to increase the size and scope and uh, power of the federal government at the expense of the American people. And um, so that's that's uh, my uh, my mantra for what's going on today is that uh, Joe Biden is the perfect puppet president. Well, you see now, Mary, you'd actually fall in love with me because I've actually stood nose to nose and toe to toe with, as I call him, lamesy gramnesty. Uh, his office made the mistake of inviting me to a fundraiser, which is two miles away from where I live, right downtown. He was holding his fundraiser. And they made the mistake of inviting me, thinking, you know, I've got someone that's going to support Lindsey Graham 100%. And trust me, uh, I have gone after him to the point where I am now persona non grata, even though he is my senator. Uh, and if you've ever seen Lindsey Graham, I'm five foot two. I literally stood toe to toe, nose to nose. He's short, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Well, what about Tim Scott? Yeah. How's Tim Scott doing? Tim Scott's doing doing good. Uh, there's a couple of times he starts to go a little bit over the rails, but we end up bombarding his office. Um, I've been trying to get him to come back to one of our Tea Party meetings, but uh, you know sometimes it's a little difficult when they sit there and they're now you're. You're a senator. You're not your state senator. You're your, you're a U.S. senator. You know, now you're like, yeah. you're you're golden. No one touches you. So we gotta chop him down a little bit and get him to come back down to earth over here a little bit, every once in a while. But we will. We do. Uh, one of the things we're doing here, which you'll love in South Carolina, we got part of it done this past yesterday, in the state legislature, constitutional carry. Now we're organizing mm-hmm. our people here to bombard the Senate. Because there's a couple of holdouts, and one of them happens to be my state senator, and he's going to be hearing from us <laughs> in full blast uh, within the next week to push forward the constitutional carry. Because it's 26 states. This will make us the 27th for constitutional carry. And it was just last year we finally passed open carry. And the day after they passed open carry, I had my Tea Party meeting, and I walked in with myself strapped on the hip. <laughs> This is open carry. You can't bother me. It's legal, which is what we have to do. We have to bring ourselves back to a constitutional republic. And doesn't it drive you absolutely up the wall when you hear people say, we live in our democracy, this democracy? Doesn't it just drive you crazy? I mean, a democracy is nowhere in the Declaration of Independence and nowhere is it in the Constitution. A democracy is a process. It's not an end in of itself. I mean... Uh, you could have a process where you flip a coin uh, in a campaign, and, and in this way we avoid all those dopey TV commercials and radio commercials and save people a lot of money and uh, have people uh, selected to, uh, to office that way. But um, democracy, I mean, it, it's just a false god that they're, they're uh, worshiping. What we have to be uh, uh, respectful of is individual rights and private property and uh, free enterprise and... Um, uh, peaceful relations around the world. Those are the things that will make for a peaceful world instead of uh, 
being on the brink of a nuclear war uh, uh, with Russia. I mean, uh, it's amazing that uh, uh, Biden still has support of nearly 50% of the American people when he said we're, we may be seeing nuclear Armageddon. I mean, anyone, any president who says that um, is really uh, off the rails because uh, uh, I'm old enough to have, uh, remember the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, 61 years ago. And we came uh, almost to a nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and America. Unfortunately, uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev were negotiating behind the scenes and they diffused the situation. And Biden doesn't seem to uh, be doing that. We don't know if there are any secret negotiations going on between the United States and Russia or the United States and China. But uh, there better be. Otherwise, uh, there could be a tripwire in Ukraine. And um, we could see uh, something that we haven't seen since... um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, nuclear bombs going off. And uh, people have to realize the United States is the only country in the world to to uh, use atom bombs. No other country has dared use them because they would be considered the pariahs. But the United States used them, according to many historians and analysts, um, unnecessarily. And so there's a precedent that the United States is ready to use nuclear weapons. And Putin is is very nervous about that because... um, uh, NATO was right on his doorsteps when the United States promised that uh, NATO would not expand when the Soviet Union collapsed. And so the United States broke its word to, uh, to Gorbachev, who was the Soviet leader at the time. And so uh, how many people now around the world trust the United States government since they lied their way into uh, the Gulf Wars, they lied their way into a, a military confrontation. And uh, we've got to remember, we overthrew a democracy in 1953 in Iran. That's why the Iranians are not very thrilled with Americans, because here we had a democratically elected governor, uh, government in Iran, in the United States, CIA, and the UK overthrew that elected governor, a government. And the same thing happened in Chile when uh, the United States overthrew Allende, who was a socialist. Well, that's the uh, Chileans, uh, Chileans' problem is that they have to deal with the socialist uh, government that they elected. And so uh, we should just butt our, uh, keep our nose out of other people's businesses. And we wouldn't have uh, American soldiers coming home either in body bags or main for life. Well, you know, one of the things that we as Americans are, we tend to look at the world through our own eyes without looking out to see what they're seeing. There's not a lot of empathy to a different form of lifestyle, to kind of put it politely. And I used to own a travel agency back in 1900 goes to show my age, (laughs) (laughs) Carter was in office, Um, and I had the the privilege of being able to travel around the world and look at things Mm. through others' eyes, and there was one point where I realized it's not just the Americans that are blind. I had the displeasure of sitting next to a, a guy from Denmark, and he swore all of New York State was exactly New York City. And I said, have you traveled outside Mm. of New York City? No. Well, how do you know all of New York State is New York City? Mm. Well, because I know. And I turned around, and unfortunately, uh, in my youth, (laughs) to say the least, I called him a crazy Dane, which went over like a red (laughs) balloon. But people are not accustomed to opening their eyes and looking to see how someone else may think. Like, we don't understand the Chinese uh, process where they have themselves a 200-year plan. They know the goal, the end goal. And we think only in a few minutes from now. 
And mm-hmm. when right. we do that, we hurt ourselves. But then again, our founding fathers, in their wisdom, warned us against unnecessary foreign entanglement. But mm-hmm. here's, the, here's the rub, Murray. In today's society, we are actually being forced into a global interaction on our everyday interactions. I mean, we all are our smart devices, everything, even this podcast, goes across the globe, not just the United States. And we have to think, and how do we place ourselves as Americans with our mindset, our constitution, into a foreign situation? That's a, that's a huge question to answer. How do we do that? Well, well, I, I think the, uh, the founding fathers uh, said it best: uh, commerce with all its hanging alliances with none. Uh, I think that was either Washington and, or Jefferson or both of them, because they understood the danger of entangling alliances. Because remember, they were living in the 1790s, the early 1800s. That was Jefferson. Uh, George Washington died, I think, in 1799. And they looked at history and they say, "Look at all these wars that are going on in Europe. We don't want to be involved in that." And the beauty of America is we're protected by two oceans. We have a friendly nation to the north, uh, Canada, and Mexico to the south. And so we're protected geographically in the old days where an invasion of America was unthinkable. It would be incredibly expensive. Now we have ICBM missiles that can deliver nuclear warheads to us in minutes. And we have to have a peaceful world. Uh, we were able to have a standoff with the Soviet Union uh, uh, during the Cold War. And cooler heads prevailed and uh, not a shot was fired. And guess what? The evil empire, as Reagan called it, collapsed before our eyes because the Soviet system was unsustainable. And uh, that, uh, I started teaching in 1985 around Pope College, and if I was give, uh, gave a talk and said, the Berlin Wall is going to come down, East Europe is going to be liberated, and the Soviet Union is going to uh, implode in the next 10 years, people would have thought I was crazy that I was smoking a lot of uh, fine cigarettes in the 1960s when I was growing up in, uh, and went to college. But yet all those things happened, uh, Annie and Curtis, in, in less than seven years, from May 1985 to 1992. This, all those things that I just mentioned happened because, because economics and finance cannot be overruled by the government. This is what the people in Washington do not understand. And the, uh, the, the final arbiter of an economy is the people and, and markets. And if you try to uh, uh, overrule the markets, you're going to get kicked in the face, and that's exactly what happened. And the people suffer, not the political and financial elites. They don't suffer. It's the people that suffer from these uh, policies of interventionism, not only domestically but internationally. Well, then how do you answer when you see something going on in Ukraine and knowing that Putin wants to take it over, basically? Uh, He needs to. Because it is a road path to go up to the Baltic Sea with Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which is then just a puddle jump across to Scandinavia. He wants to be able to control that whole, that whole path because he wants the port of Riga back in Latvia. So how do you say, to, how do we prevent this man from trying his version of world denomination, uh, world domination on a country that is struggling to just stay alive. How do, how do we, as human beings, and as Americans loving freedom and independence, stay out of it? 
Well, uh, there, were, there have been reports that a year ago, before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, that uh, Zelensky and Putin wanted to get together to talk about peace talks, but the United States uh, uh, did not allow uh, Zelensky to uh, negotiate with uh, Putin. So uh, the onus is on the United States for uh, uh, making uh, for, for not uh, allowing the peace process to go forward. And so uh, uh, you've got to look everything. Uh, in this situation from both the eyes of uh, Putin and, and uh, Ukraine, that um, Putin just wants a, a assurance that NATO is not going to be right on his doorstep when they already are, because Poland is part of NATO and, and so are the, uh, the uh, Baltic states. And so there was no need to expand NATO because the Warsaw Pact uh, it, uh, disappeared after the uh, Soviet Union uh, disappeared. And so uh, the geopolitics of Europe is fascinating because uh, uh, everyone thinks that Putin is uh, hell-bent on more domination. But as we know, uh, expanding your, na uh, your country to other nations is a very expensive proposition, economically and financially. And so... Um, uh, the, uh, Russia doesn't have unlimited resources, and so the question is, what does Putin want? And I think he wants assurances that uh, uh, NATO is, is not a threat to uh, to Russia. And if you recall, in 1997, the New York Conservatives put together this project for the New American Century, which laid out a plan to o to topple uh, dictators in the Middle East and possibly even um, uh, the, uh, uh, Russia and have a regime change in Russia, which is, again, not a constitutionally authorized uh, authority of, of the federal government. So we need to have an honest discussion in the Congress about, um, about our relationships with other countries. And I think George Washington laid it down in his uh, farewell address, and so did Eisenhower laid it down in his farewell address in 1961, that we have to be wary of the military-industrial complex because um, they, they seek power, and uh, one of the ways they have power is to, um, is to frighten the American people that there's uh, someone, there's a threat outside. I heard this during Vietnam, that if we didn't go into Vietnam, that uh, Vietnam, uh, the Vietnamese would overrun eventually Hawaii, and the Hawaiians would be speaking Vietnamese. Well, that, that's the domino theory. That was a false theory based upon a very bad premise that um, Vietnam was an expansionist power. All they wanted was to unite, uh, the North Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese wanted to unite with the South Vietnamese because it's one country. And so um, I look at history from the perspective of uh, why do governments do what they do? And they basically do what they do because people are power hungry and they're money hungry and they don't want to work for it. They just want to uh, steal it, steal from the American people through taxes and uh, inflation. And so uh, I think we have to have uh, this honest discussion about U.S. foreign policy and our role in the world, which could be um, trade and no entangling alliances. And this way, whatever conflicts arise between nations, they have to settle it among themselves. And the United States wants to be an honest broker to bring people to the table to negotiate. I'm all for that. Uh, peaceful negotiations is the way that we have a more stable uh, world uh, situation and, and more trade, which means more prosperity. Well, you know, you mentioned taxes, and um, of course we know the IRS <laughs> was originally sold to the American people that only the upper 1% will ever pay. The average right. person will never pay. Right. So, of course, we get, we get the, uh, the um, income tax amendment. Now, there have been proposals over the years to alter the tax system. We know government needs 
some sort, sort of revenue to function, but we don't need the vast government. Like, we can eliminate the Department of Education. We can eliminate so many different agencies within the federal government we don't need and are unconstitutional. But to fund the existing government it, as it's pared down, we would need some sort of revenue. It's only logical, correct, Mary? Sure, absolutely. All the right. question is, which, so, we have to start with it. What, what, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. So I was saying, yeah, we have to have some form. So in the past, that has been proposed, the fair tax, which I love the proposal. That means that instead of government mandating that I hand over my money to them willy-nilly, I can say, well, I want to go out and buy a TV, and I know a portion of that money will go to fund the government, which I'm willing to pay because I want to buy that TV. But what size mm-hmm. TV do I get? Do I get the $2,000 one where I pay more taxes or the $200 one? And I get to choose how much of my money I am now handing over to government. Would that not make more sense? It sounds reasonable, but uh, as the author of a book on how to create a tax-free society, uh, my goal is to educate people about the role, uh, what the role of government should be in a free society. And we start with that premise and then say, well, let's downsize the federal government as quickly as possible to its constitutional uh, uh authorizations and then come up with uh, the, the least uh, intrusive tax system, which is basically a sales tax. Um, and it, has, it can't be uh, what is proposed to the fair tax, which is 23%. Uh, and then if we uh, start with a very uh, low sales tax, uh, we, we can fund the government on a transition basis to, uh, to a much smaller government. After all, Florida and uh, I think 10 other states do not have state income taxes in Florida. The big right. state not having an income tax in Florida is really a tremendous achievement. Same thing with Texas. And so uh, we can do it without uh, an income tax at the federal level, but, the, but we have to get back to what the federal government should spend money on. And uh, that's the debate we should have. And unfortunately, uh, 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 nobody that I see is uh, uh, putting that initiative in front of the American people about what, should, what is the proper role of government in a free society. Mary, I, I thought that was really quick... good lead-in to your. Hang on a second. <laughs> I thought it was a perfect lead-in to your book and your tax policy. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, I got Curtis. just one quick. How will and how should President Jimmy Carter be remembered? Well, I think his legacy, uh, from my perspective, is that. Um, uh, he was able to deregulate a substantial portion of the U.S. economy because uh, he asked uh, economist Alfred Kahn of Cornell University to study uh, economic regulation in the United States, and he came back with a report saying uh, this is not working. It's counterproductive. It's, it's kept prices high for consumers. It's distorted various sectors of the economy, transportation, telecommunications, um, the airline. And uh, he began the process of deregulation, which helped create the boom of the 1980s. And uh, I would see, I would hope that people um, uh, would recognize his uh, his uh, contribution to helping the U.S. economy become more free enterprise oriented instead of cartels that were created by the federal government agencies. Uh, on the other hand, he appointed a which was familiar to the Federal Reserve, which inflated quite money tremendously. In the, uh, the administration, then he had a dump in the face. So, uh, well, Murray, it seems like you're, you're, you had the Iranian crisis. Uh, 
Murray, your your connection's fading here. That eventually ended. So uh, I don't have a mixed legacy to say the least. Goodness is that he gets involved in Well, Murray, it sounds like we're losing our connection a bit. I, did we lose Murray? Curtis, did, I guess we lost no. Murray, did we? No, there we, there we go. We got you back, Murray. Your connection faded out towards the end. But um, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. We definitely have to have you back because it's so much fun speaking with you. And uh, I'd love to debate you about... Um, I, I agree with just about everything that you do except the... Yeah, I don't think but, he um, can hear really, you. <laughs> I don't think he can. But uh, Murray Sabrin, his new book is From Immigrant to Public Intellectual and American Story. It is a must-read. It's a fun read. It's a short read. And I urge everyone to go get it. You can download it on your Kindle or get the book either on Goodreads or Amazon. Murray, it has been a pleasure. And Murray has dropped. It has been an interesting show with all the technical difficulties. I have been kicked out officially out of our own chat room. Uh, so wow. <laughs> I cannot get back in. Uh, I've tried several times, and it's just not let me in at all. Good old BTR, <laughs> back to his old pranks yeah. and antics. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't let me open up um, the show. Uh, everyone was signed in trying to listen, and now it's not letting me back into the chat room at all. So I'm locked out. <laughs> I'm wow. completely locked out of the chat room. Anyway. As a matter of fact, it, my computer screen is all messing up because BTR is messing me up. But we did not start off our show with a dedication to a fallen hero, which we'll do in a few moments. But we had intended, Curtis and I, to have the new format up running today. But unfortunately, Curtis hurt himself uh, during our little hiatus. Thankfully, he did not paralyze himself from the neck down. If he had, I would have yeah. paralyzed him from the neck down and paralyzed him anyway. He took a, a little bit of a tumble. No joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is what but, you did to yourself. But and I got I'm cleared sure today. I got cleared I'm good. today. I'm, I'm good to go. I'm good. I'm glad you're back up to shape because if Carolyn didn't kill you, I'd be coming down there to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not but in let the that interim, well, in the interim, while Curtis was recovering from his broken neck, I went to the hospital for an allergic reaction, and they were kind enough to send me home with full-blown chronic bronchitis. So I spent a month and a half recovering from that. Still have a few sniffles, but most of it is gone. So I hadn't had time to work on the program like I wanted to, but now Curtis is well, and we're going to do a couple of uh, trial runs. So hopefully in about a week or two, max two weeks, Curtis, I want a deadline, 14 days from uh-huh. now, to have the new format up, which would be so much better. We won't have to deal with Blog Talk Radio and all their mess. You just sign into our show page, our homepage, and you can see us. You can interact on the chat room. Uh, I would love to try to continue on Blog Talk Radio, but as I saw the phone connection messing up, it's oh, not yeah. going to be a pretty picture. Uh, but it's going to be such a, a better one uh, because you will see not just the still pictures of Curtis and our guests. You will actually see videos side by side, more like you see in, say, for example, Newsmax or One American News. So we should have that up running in maximum. Curtis, I got it set 14 days from today is our deadline. So if we can do it sooner, we can. If not, we'll aim for 14 days. How's that? When is Easter? All right. When is Easter? 
Is that March? Ooh. Well, April. you got forty days from forty Let's days see. from Wednesday. Oh, okay. So it can. We've got February. March, oh yeah. It'll be the ninth of April. April ninth of April. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, perfect. We'll be ready long Wednesday. before then. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. So I want to thank everyone that has joined us. We were up on YouTube and Facebook. I want to thank everyone that made their comments there. Uh, always, always good, good to have them there. All those that were here on Blog Talk Radio also. Uh, my alter ego was up there on the chat. You know, Jay Ubellis, um was up there. But for some reason, I could get it on the one computer, but I can't get it on this one. Go figure. Anyway, we will do our dedication if uh, that's all right, and then we will end the show after that. How does that sound, Curtis? Sounds great. Sounds great. All right. All right, so with that said, our dedication today is going to go out to Chief of Police Justin McIntyre of the Breckenridge Borough Police Department in Pennsylvania. His end of watch was Monday, January 2nd of 2023. And the first part of this is coming from CNN.com. Amanda Musa and Holly Yan wrote the following, and I did edit part of it uh, accordingly. A police chief who ran after a fleeing suspect was shot in the head and made the ultimate sacrifice, Pennsylvania officials said. Breckenridge Police Chief Justin McIntyre was killed while chasing a man wanted on a weapons-related prohibition violation, police said. Pennsylvania State Police initially encountered the suspect, 28-year-old Aaron Lamont Swan, on the previous Sunday night during a traffic stop north of Pittsburgh in Allegheny County, Police Superintendent Christopher Kearns said. Swan fled the traffic stop. Around 4.15 that Monday, Brackenrich police spotted Swan and started a foot pursuit. The suspect opened fire, killing McIntyre and wounding another officer. Police Chief Justin McIntyre ran towards danger to keep Pennsylvania safe and he made the ultimate sacrifice in service to the community. Pennsylvania Attorney General and Governor-elect Josh Shapiro tweeted. The second officer was struck in the leg and was taken to a hospital in stable condition. After the shooting, the suspect was spotted in a carjacked Subaru in Pittsburgh. The county police superintendent added, another police chase followed. Swan crashed the car and fled into the woods, we opened fire on officers. Swan was shot and killed by detectives from Pittsburgh Police Department. The Allegheny County Sheriff's Office posted a tribute to McIntyre, honoring his legacy and the hard work of officers in smaller police departments. Chief McIntyre found his calling many years ago and found his personal and professional life in his work as a police officer and police chief, the Sheriff's Office posted on Facebook. The service and dedication led him to sacrificing himself earlier in an effort to make sure that his Brackenridge family was not put in harm's way. That is what police officers do. Small towns in Allegheny County and, of course, Pennsylvania have special relationships with their police departments, the sheriff's office said. In many of these boroughs and townships, the police department may consist of only a chief and a handful of officers. Such is the case in Breckenridge, 
And that is why the senseless death of Brackenridge Chief Justin McIntyre will reach into and tear at the very soul the small piece of our county. From Legacy.com, the obituary of Chief McIntyre. Chief Justin McIntyre of the Breckenridge Police Department was born December 27, 1976, in Harrison Township to Emma Lori Lorraine Clark McIntyre and to John L. Lee McIntyre of Breckenridge and was a lifelong resident of the Breckenridge area. A police officer for the past 22 years, he was appointed chief in 2019. Chief McIntyre was a dedicated police officer. He was a 1994 graduate of Highlands High School, was also a graduate of the Allegheny County Police Academy in North Park. Justin was a member of the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge No. 39, Oregon Hunting and Fishing Club, and the South Buffalo Township Sportsman Club. He was a member of the National Rifle Association and a certified NRA firearms instructor. He enjoyed cooking, hunting, fishing, and loved Camp Huckabuck. Justin was also an avid NASCAR fan, Pittsburgh Steeler, and Pittsburgh Penguins fans. He leaves behind his wife of nine years, Ashley McIntyre, his son Jordan McIntyre, also his son Justin Clark Jr., known as J.J. McIntyre, his daughter Alexis McIntyre, and a stepson, Brennan Mann. And finally, from CBS News, Ross Gudati. Hundreds of law enforcement officers came to New Kensington to to mourn fallen Breckenridge Police Chief Justin McIntyre at a service, while thousands of residents lined the Freeport Road for the procession. The officers came from across the state and the country, some coming far as way as Texas. It's a somber and humbling experience, said Ian Moore, a Pittsburgh neighbor and Bay Village, Ohio officer. Moore was one of hundreds of officers attending McIntyre's funeral and one of many from out of state. Chief McIntyre was my brother, Moore said. I never met him, but we're family. Officer Alexandria Arthurs was with a group of officers from West Virginia. They didn't have to be there but said they wouldn't want to be anywhere else. We want to support each other in the good times, the bad times, and the really bad times like this, Arthur said. Police cars were parked all over New Kensington for the service. They said it's something they needed to do and gives them an opportunity to see one another. One officer called it the saddest type of family reunion there could be. It gives officers a chance to mourn one of their own, whether or not they were part of their department. It's the least I can do, as much as the family has sacrificed the last couple of days, Moore said. After the service, slowly and a sea of blue, McIntyre made his way to his final resting place. The outpouring of supporters lining the route brought people in the procession to tears. My brother grew up with Justin playing football. My dad coached Justin playing football, so everyone knows the McIntyre family, their childhood friend, Amy Nolf. Nolf wanted her daughters Isabella and Annabelle to see the funeral procession. Even if they don't fully understand the gravity of the situation, 
They still wanted to show support. She kept saying, we need to go out and wave our flag and say goodbye. First responders came from all over the state and the country. Allegheny Fire Company Chief Kevin Funkhauser packed 10 guys into three units and set up an intersection along the route. I don't know how many fire companies and emergency responders are here, but I would probably say upwards over 100, said Funkhauser. Archie Nagea sat quietly with a flag taped to his wheelchair. He tells KDKA-TV McIntyre was a helper. He seemed like he wanted to help everyone he could. That's why Nagaya asked his caretaker to bring him out to Freeport Road to say goodbye, to let him know he's loved, said Nagaya. Supporters flooded the Freeport Road in blue signs and flags, and some people even decked out their homes in blue. My brother-in-law made all those bows, lights, around the front door with the police reef, said Cassie Gillette, Natrona Heights resident. Gillette tells KDKA her husband is a police officer participating in the funeral service. This past week has been tough for her mentally. Very angering as well that this has happened. And one individual came into her town and did irreversible damage to it, she said. That's why she's paying her respects. Holding her 10-month-old son tight and hoping for change. I really hope this never happens again in any community anywhere. And I hope this will be the change we need to see, said Gillette. Today's show is dedicated to Chief McIntyre. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in the military from the birth of this great nation through today and into our promising future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, and it is a fitting end to today's show. As we say, Chief of Police Justin McIntyre, stand down. Your end of tour. May God bless. And may God bless each and every one of you listening out there. And we will be back next Friday, same bat time, same bat station. So until then, I leave you with Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America.
brothers gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power. But they're vicious Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.